Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. My name is Enid Portuguese, and I'm the Communications Director at the Foundation. Today's recording is from our September 27 event with Terrence Winter, the acclaimed creator of Boardwalk Empire, who also wrote The Wolf of Wall Street and was an Emmy-winning writer on The Sopranos. Winter spoke to Writers Guild Foundation Board President Larry Andres about growing up in Brooklyn, finding his way to law school, and giving up law to pursue his dream of becoming a writer. As expected, he's got tons of anecdotes about the writing hustle, and he even invited old roommates from his early days to the event. Expect some tidbits about building the world around Boardwalk Empire and his approach to writing the anti-hero. Don't forget to check out wgfoundation.org for our upcoming events. We're also bringing back the golden ticket for 2017. For one price, you get access to every single ticketed event and VIP pre-reception through 2017. It's an awesome deal if you attend our events regularly or want to attend more of our events regularly. So grab your golden ticket today on our website. All right, without further ado, here's Writers on Writing with Terrence Winter. I'm going to take my uh, jacket yeah, off. Yeah, stay a while. Maybe undo my top button. It's always mm-hmm. challenging. I know Jerry Seifel did a routine about the button, like the placement of the button, but this is like, this is Terry, and then this is Disco Terry. So do we just take this chair? All right, now. Thank you. Sure. Get settled. It's going to be a fun 90 minutes. Great. It's fun already. Good. You know, one of the things that many film schools and many programs teach is how to write a tight first draft, but very programs teach you how to work a meeting, which is where you get your job in the first place. And one of the basic questions in any job interview at a studio or a network is, so tell us about yourself. You have to have that answer on lockdown. So, Terry, tell us about yourself. I will, in one second, I'm going to start out with a confession. It's something I've never told anybody, and uh, I swear to God, I've never told anybody. Every time I come to the Writers Guild, I think I should tell them this story. And it's taken me, uh, I've been a Guild member for 20 two years, and I'm assuming they can't revoke my membership at this point. I came to the, when I came to LA 25 years ago in 1991, and I wanted to start researching how to write scripts. I had no idea where to even start. I was kind of parachuted in here from Brooklyn, and just decided to teach myself this business. I came here to read scripts, and I didn't know what a script really looked like. This is pre-internet, 1991. So I got it in my head, uh, and I'll tell you later, that I wanted to write a Doogie Howser spec script. <laughs> Don't ask. So they had a Doogie Howser spec script here. So I said to the woman in the li- library, um, I said, can I make a copy of this? She said, no, and there's copyright laws. And she pointed me to the sign on the wall. And I thought, you know, what, what, what could I possibly do with this Doogie Howser script that's going to cause any damage? So I'm so ashamed. <laughs> I stole a Doogie Howser script oh, from the library. No. 
No. And I did. Terry, no. And I went to Kinko's and I copied it <laughs> and I really fully intended to bring it back. And, and she, I felt so bad. She was an old lady and she was so easy to trick. I kind of said, like, Whoa, what's that? Is that a tarantula? And she's not. I slipped the thing in and then I left. And I'm so sorry. And I know I'm going to get a letter from the, the guild and, and I'll deny it. I'll say, No, that was just a story I told. Well, you should, you, anyway. you should know there's all, almost all digital now, so it'd be a hard to do. Good, now. Yeah, I, and, yeah, I remember it was a. It was a I swear to God, it was a, a Dougie Hauser script called Vinny Video Vici. And it was about Max Casella's character. Max, Max and I went on to work together on Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire, and Vinyl. He started videotaping Dougie Hauser. And I really only got it to see the format of the Dougie Hauser script so I could write my own spec script, which I did. But I'm getting to rest. Tell me about yourself. Anyway, yeah. yeah well, I, I, so, I will say that all is forgiven. The statute of limitations is over. I would think so, yeah. I would think so, yeah. Um, that's a great question, and that really goes to the heart of, of being a writer. I mean, you're a storyteller, and the, the first story that anybody who's going to hire you is, who are you? What's your story? What makes you different? So, you know, if you don't already know how to answer that question, and you don't know about yourself, you should really stop and think about it. I usually just start from the beginning. I grew up in Brooklyn. I lived in an area called Marine Park, uh, lived in Brooklyn before it was cool in an area that is still not cool and never will be cool and I have two <laughs> friends of mine from Brooklyn from that area who can attest to that all the way on the ass end of Brooklyn sort of I have to describe Marine Park in relation to other places it's near Sheepshead Bay you may have heard of that it's kind of near Coney Island which is where I went to high school I grew up in a very blue collar neighborhood a fairly working class family five kids my mom uh, was a secretary my dad died when I was seven years old I had no idea what I wanted to be as a kid except rich that was my motivation uh, the idea of working in TV and film was especially back in Brooklyn in the 60s and 70s um, 50 almost 56 nobody there's no TV production in New York since the 50s so you didn't know anybody who worked in film and TV. So the idea of doing this for a living was something so off the charts. And uh, this is something that not only other people did, people in other states did. So for me, you know, I just wanted to make a lot of money. And I, I was always ambitious and hustled a lot, worked from the time I was 10 years old. I delivered drugs for a drugstore, not a drug dealer. Uh, but I slowly veered into other sort of nefarious stuff. When I was 13... I got a job working in a butcher shop that was owned by Paul Castellano, who's the head of the Gambino crime family. He had a chain of butcher shops called CNS Meats, Castellano and Sons. And that was my sort of introduction into the career I would have much later on. I also, at the same time, and somebody asked me this recently, how did you start writing about crime? And I said, how do I pinpoint it? And it was the movie Oliver, the musical of Oliver Twist. I, it all goes back to that. I wanted to be part of that gang. I wanted to be one of Fagan's guys. I became fascinated with the idea of pickpockets and the whole idea that you could, you could swindle people out of money, uh, which is what I do for a living now. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and about a year later, The Sting came out. And that was like really an introduction into comments. So I was really interested in that. So that coupled with The Butcher Shop with Paul Castellano and growing up in New York and watching uh, you know, Channel 11, which was a godsend because it used to run every gangster movie and the Bowery Boys. And it all kind of just created this you know, ma mishmash of, of gangster stuff that, that sort of really informed who I became later. Back to the ambition and what I wanted to be. I really always worked hard. Uh, I had worked in the butcher shop. I waxed cars on the weekend. I was a waiter in a local synagogue. You name it, I did it. I was just always hustling. I 
initially um, wanted to own a delicatessen, and I did. I ended up in a vocational high school in Brooklyn. Uh, it was a place called William E. Grady Vocational High School in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Was one of the worst, if not the worst, high school uh, in the Brooklyn in the seventies. Something of which we were very proud. Uh, when you're seventeen, that stuff, you know, it's like a badge of honor. I, uh, my hand to God and on my children and my wife and mother-in-law here, and they know I would never say this. It wasn't true. Certainly invoking that. In senior year of high school, in William E. Grady, in English class, we read Death of a Salesman from September until June. <laughs> that was senior English in a New York City public school in 1978. I'm not kidding. I got also the highest grade on the English Regents exam in the school's history. And it wasn't even 90, it was like 88. But I was by far away. So I was like, I never cracked a book during high school. I didn't know anything. I just wanted to work in the deli business. I had a wonderful teacher as a junior, a woman named Lainey Gilbert, who used to make us write short stories on Fridays. And one day she kept me after class. This, is, this sounds like a letter to Penthouse Forum. It's not anything like that. She kept me after and she said, um, I'm glad somebody, somebody got that. <laughs> She said, I think you're really, you're really talented. You should think about going to college. And I said, ah, I'm going to go into the delicatessen business, uh, which I did. I graduated from Grady. I moved down to my mom's house you know, when I was 19, 18 years old. I uh, was working in the delicatessen uh, with two guys who were much older than me. They were in their 30s. And within about a year, they completely screwed me over, and I ended up selling my ownership of the deli back to them. It's now 1980. 1980, Christmas of 1980. I just told the story downstairs. The deli business had imploded. I was living in this apartment near Kings Plaza that had this horrible orange shag carpeting. It was freezing out, and I took a job at Macy's uh, for the Christmas season. And my job was to go to, around, go to each cash register and pick up the hangers and then deliver them to a place like in the bowels of Macy's. And five hours of picking up hangers, I my brain fried. I was putting hangers on my head, walking around the store. I didn't, I didn't make it to hour six. I just threw the hangers down and left and never even got a paycheck. I just went home. But right at that time, I remember, I, the one thing I did have going for me is I love to read. And I read all kinds of different stuff. I liked, you know, mostly nonfiction. And there was a quote by Benjamin Franklin that always stuck with me. Pour thy purse into thy head and no man can take it from you. So it's basically get an education and people will not fuck you out of the deli business. So <laughs> Benjamin Friday, he didn't put it quite as colorfully. But uh, I thought, you know what, I, gotta, I, I should do this. So the problem was the extent of my higher reading was death of a salesman. And I had this shitty high school vocational auto mechanics license. So I truly did not even know where colleges were. I, I never intended to go to college. I didn't even think I took the SATs at that point. So I was in Greenwich Village in, uh, around Washington Square Park, and there is New York University. And I remember vaguely hearing that this was a really good school. So I thought, <laughs> oh, okay, I'll go here. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. This was the extent of my college research. I walked into New, New York University. I got the brochure. And it was within 30 seconds I realized I'm not getting in here with my vocational degree in auto mechanics and my death of a salesman knowledge, however in-depth it is. But what I did have going for me was that those years of being a con man, um, I understood how to finagle my way into situations. So I thought, you know what, if I pick a major no one else wants, I'll eliminate my competition. So I went down the list, and in 1980, NYU offered a major in medieval religion. And I went... <laughs> 
who could possibly be competing for this against me? So I said, that's what I want to do. So I got a letter from a guy a couple of weeks later, called me, and he says, yeah, so I'm looking at your application. You have an auto mechanics license, and you want to study medieval religion. How did that happen? And you were in Brooklyn. How did that happen? And I said, well, I'm, I'm very religious. <laughs> First of all, and second of all, I've always been fascinated with the Knights of the Round Table, which was the only medieval thing I, I knew. And he said, okay, well, that's really interesting. Uh, you'll hear from us. So I got a letter saying oh, you were accepted to NYU. I went, holy shit, this is great. Problem was, NYU was really expensive, uh, and I was l living on my own. My mom was a secretary, and you know, the, my the one thing I'm just flashing forward to the Sopranos. The one thing every writer on the Sopranos h had in common: we all had Livia as a mother. So I called my mother and said, "Hey, mom, I got accepted to New York University," and she goes, "I'll give you six months." <laughs> I said, oh, thank you for your support. I said, you know, it's really expensive. She said, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> so I, this is the woman who sent me to auto mechanics school. So not, not really a high opinion of my, uh, my prospects. So I went to the student loan office, and I just said, where do I sign? I, and I just I fell through every crack in the financial aid system. I couldn't get any financial aid. But I, I just said, I'm just going to sign my life away. And I thought, it's either going to work or not work. If it works, I'll pay the loans back. If it doesn't work, well, you know, they're going to put me in student loan jail. I mean, boy, they're going to shoot me. You know, I'll just fine. So I did. So four years of NYU, that was completely on, you know, financial aid. And the other thing, though, I'm now 19. I'm so old. And I thought, you know what? Everybody else is 17. And, you know, I'd get online to pay. And kids are whipping out checkbooks from their parents. And I got, like, 19 financial aid forms and shit. And I said, I'm getting out of here in four years. I'm not going to be 29 years old trying to graduate. I said, I don't care what I have to do. I am going to graduate from here in four years. So what I did is I went to school full-time during the day, and I worked full-time at night. And I, you name it, I did it. I was a... How do you do that? How do you... I just powered through it. I mean, I, I always just... You know, I had a really strong work ethic, you know, just it, always. So I was a cab driver. I was a hospital security guard in an emergency room in Brooklyn on the midnight to eight shift. I delivered the New York Times. I was, I'm the guy in the middle of the night when the New York Times appears magically in the morning. I'm the idiot at three in the morning who's delivering. I had... Four hundred New York Times I delivered every day for a year straight, and I don't have to tell you in 1982 what the Sunday New York Times looked like. Four hundred of those on top of a of, of a Volkswagen station wagon in Brooklyn. There was one area I delivered in Brooklyn called. Um, uh, Moore Basin, which uh, was a home to a lot of cops, not cops, I'm sorry, uh, lawyers, doctors, and wise guys. And if I would get somebody who would start the New York Times, you know, delivery, if I didn't have a chance during the day to drive down the block and see exactly where the house was, I wouldn't deliver it because you didn't want to be on the wrong person's lawn at 2 o'clock in the morning holding something that looked like anything, you know, that could look like a gun. And the, the New York Times people didn't understand. I said, do you know who lives here? I was like, hey, hey, Mr. Gotti, here's your paper. <laughs> it's like, you, you, know, you really just had, I remember times at night when I would turn down a block in Mill Basin to deliver a newspaper to be 4 in the morning and I'd see a car pulled over with the lights on and I would just throw it in reverse and back up. I don't know, I don't want to know. It's none of my business. You know, you, just kind of, you don't want to be an innocent bystander. So that was one of the things that growing up there sort of you know, at least gave you a little bit of street smarts. Anyway, um, I, just, I just continued to do jobs like that. The godsend for me was my last two years in college. I was a doorman on the midnight to eight shift at a building on the Upper East Side. So from midnight to eight in the morning, 
the job interview consisted of, do you think you can stay awake between midnight and 8 a.m.? I said, yeah. They said, all right, there's a baseball bat under the desk. Good luck if anybody gives you a hard time. So it was great. It was a union job, and I got to sit there, and I, and I, was, you know, I had medical benefits, and it, and it was great. Let me ask you about that, though. Yeah. What did you learn about human behavior from being a doorman? Not a lot in the middle of the night. Uh, a lot of people are drunk, and uh, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of psychology. It was interesting. What you learned about human behavior is people people uh, always reacted to me like I was stupid, uh, which you know maybe at that time <laughs> it was. But no, it's funny. They 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 always assume because I was a door. I remember a woman particularly one night came up. It was like two in the morning, and she said, oh, "I need to." Um, I need to sign in a guest for tomorrow morning. I said, okay, great. What's her name? She said, I don't know, a a Margaret something or other. I know she was M-A-R, and I remember like, I got it. You know, but the idea that I wouldn't be able to spell Margaret. And it was interesting. It's a real, uh, you know, I, I never, you know, and I think part of that experience, I never assumed that the person driving my cab is that's all they can do. And it's so interesting too, I mean, not to get all political and Donald Trumpy, but you know, you know, the guy driving your cab, I barely handle English. This guy speaks two languages already. And he's driving the cab, you know. So you, people who tend to look down on people who have come from somewhere else and are struggling, you know, this guy somehow figured out how to get his ass from some godforsaken place, come here, get a hack license, do all the shit it takes to get here. You got something going. And that's, and that's also true for a lot of people in this room who want to be in this business. One of the things I loved about coming to L.A. is that everybody who wants to be in this business, probably, most of them came from somewhere else. So right out of the gate, you, you got yourself here. You're here tonight. You know, you, you've already got what it takes to start to succeed in this business. You came from wherever you came, probably didn't know anybody, and you just showed up. And you, you that's the big first step. Let me build on that because... What I'm getting from what you're saying is that all experience is useful. Oh, yeah. Even though it may not appear to be. So your HBO resume is all New York-based shows. Right. How is being a diehard New Yorker, has that informed your writing of those shows? And could you have done it if you had lived in L.A.? I don't know. I mean, so much of my personality is based on, you know, having grown up there. So it's hard to imagine a version of me, you know... <laughs> Uh, from somewhere else it's a uh, i really i don't know i you know new, what new york gives you uh is it, it it you know that's what i say about raising kids they were so great for better or worse you were going to deal with people all day you're going to deal with nice people bad people assholes every ethnic group uh every socio socioeconomic group and you're just going to learn how to deal with people and you can you also get to observe people i used to love being on the subway and just sort of being a fly on the wall and listening to how people spoke or even when it was bad and people, you know, you get, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of, uh, you know, people with, with mental problems on the subway. But I used to, you know, everybody was walking this way. I would be getting closer and just kind of like just observing and listening because it's fascinating. And, it, you know, it's really, that I don't think you get a lot of that here. You, you're just not thrown into that mix. I think that helps with comedy too. I mean, you just, a lot of the, and especially a lot of the comedy that I did and got drawn to was people under very pressurized situations who are angry at each other. It's very Three Stooges. It's very Bowery Boys. It's very Sopranos. And we used to reference the Three Stooges all the time. Or the Honeymooners. You know, Ralph Cramden doing a slow burn. There's nothing I relate to more than that kind of getting slowly angry and then exploding. That is so near and dear to my heart. You know, <laughs> Comedically. You know, by the way, in terms of, uh, tell us about yourself, you're hired. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That wasn't always the case. I had a um, 
I had a meeting once. Uh, my agent at the time says it was a sitcom meeting. And uh, my agent says, you got to go in. He goes, there's a lot of people competing for this job. You got to go in. You got to blow that room away. You got to, don't be shy. I said, shy? Me? Are you kidding? He goes, I'm telling you, you got to blow the doors off that place. So I went in and I gave a version of what I just did on steroids. And I walked out of there, and this guy, the, uh, the nameless producer, uh, had two different shows that he was going to have on the air that year. And I, I got in my car and went, gee, do I want to be on that one or the other one? Maybe the other one. And my, the phone rings, and my agent calls me, and he goes, uh, yeah, um, that didn't go well. I go, what do you mean it didn't go well? He goes, yeah, you, you might have been come on a little too strong. I said, you told me to blow the doors off the fucking place. He goes, yeah, you might have blown them off a little too hard. There's just one, there's one guy. Everybody in the room seemed to be reacting well, but there was one guy in the room I kept catching him out of the corner of my eye. It just had like just really, it just was not playing to him. And his quote was, "Life's too short." And it, that became a, uh, a um, shorthand for my friend Frank Winzuri years later who gave me my first job, um, whenever we've had bad meetings, he called me up and go, yeah, you just got life's too short. Because, <laughs> you know, it'd be like you just came on too strong. But anyway, yeah, you got you to gotta gauge it and play the room. That said, you know, uh, you got to be yourself. So Yeah, I I'm curious how you went from religion to law. Well, I never took a meeting of a religion class, just to be clear. I, uh, <laughs> I, once I got in, I, um, I, I, and here's the thing, too. This sounds incredibly naive. It's uh, the God's honest truth. I was accepted to NYU, which has many different schools. And again, remember, I had no idea how colleges worked. I was accepted to the liberal arts school at NYU called the Washington Square University College. I thought that was the entire college. I didn't know, for example, there is a business school and there's a medical school and there's a film school and there's a this school and a that school. I thought, this is the college. So I said, okay, what courses can I take? And on the courses, there were creative writing and journalism. Um, you know, and, and, you know, even that said, had I even known there were a film school, I don't know at that point in my life if I would have considered that something legitimate to do because it just sounds so crazy. Like, who does that for a living? But, this, you know, okay, creative writing. So I remember my teacher in high school told me I was a good writer, so I took creative writing, and I started taking journalism, journalism courses, which I really liked. And as I was getting closer to graduating, um, I thought, well, you know, of course, again, I wanted to be rich. So the only two jobs I knew that would make people rich were doctor and lawyer. So I started thinking about law school. So I had a professor uh, in my junior and senior year, a guy who's a, still an editor at the Associated Press named Jerry Schwartz. And Jerry, um, I asked Jerry to write me a recommendation for law school. And he said, sure, absolutely. So he writes me this recommendation, and he gives it to me in a manila envelope. And he says, the recommendation's in there, and there's another letter in there for you for you personally. And that letter said, please don't go to law school. Please please be a writer. And I was like, wow, this is the second grown-up that told me I should do this. So I, you know, I, I started researching, well, what is a writer for the Associated Press get paid out of school? And it turned out it was half of what I was getting paid as a doorman. <laughs> so I was like, this, I, I'm now $40,000 in debt, back when $40,000 was a lot of money. Uh, and it still is, uh, you know, this is back in 1984, and I thought, I just spent $40,000 to get a 50% pay, pay cut from a doorman job. My friends who became auto mechanics were making like 80 grand a year, and they're making fun of me, like, oh, Joe College, you know, and I was like, this is ridiculous, I'm going to law school. So that was what led me to law school, absolutely mercenary, no interest in law other than 
I'm a good bullshit artist. I think I could probably do that. So, but, but uh, like I said, a law program is rigorous, especially if, if you're not yeah, into it. Yeah, it was really and, and triply rigorous if you're not into it. And I, it was really hard for me. I, I couldn't care less. I was talking to some some guys before who were lawyers, and I remember the first day, first class law school. There was a case called Pearson versus Post. It was in the 18th century. A guy chased a fox from his land onto another guy's land, and he killed the fox. And the question was, who owns the fox? And I remember looking out the window going, who gives a fuck? Just <laughs> <laughs> cut the fox in half. I mean, really, is it a lawsuit? Really? And I'm not thinking, this is going to be a long couple of years here. And it was. It was really, really hard for me. And I ended up going to night school. So three years of law school became four years. I ended up going to work for Merrill Lynch during the day. So... I was, you know, in the 80s, the Ivan Bosky years, I was working on the trading floor at Merrill Lynch. I was the legal assistant to the uh, Council for the Equity Trading Division. So who, little did I know in 1987 when the stock market crashed, a guy named Jordan Belfort was a, a mile away on his first day as a, as a, as a stockbroker. But, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. So anyway, I did that, graduated from law school, uh, took the bar exam, passed the bar exam in New York and Connecticut, in case anybody needs to learn in Connecticut. And... Um, Got a job. Uh, oh, so I graduate. So the job I want is to be an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, which after a year you're trying murder cases. I thought, this is cool. This is, I could do this. And that job paid $2,000 more than the doorman job. <laughs> now I'm $73,000 in the hole, and I have a job offer slightly better than the, jo than the doorman job. And I literally could not afford to take that job. I pen and paper and went, I am at a $500 a month deficit between student loans, rent, et cetera. So I had to take a job at the most you know, lucrative one I could was a very large law firm in New York uh, called Wilson Elser Moskowitz Settlement and Dicker. And there were 300 attorneys. This is back in 1988. And within three days, I realized I had made the biggest mistake of my life. I was sneaking out during the day to go to movies, telling my assistant I had to go to the law library, and I was in bookstores, completely living this double life of what did I do, and I have this diploma written in Latin that cost me $70,000, and I have a secretary, and all the things I thought I wanted, and I was so miserable. And I hung on there for two years, and... Is, so is, is the heart beating you to be a writer at that point? It was bubbling up. It was starting to, I couldn't deny it anymore. It was my deep, dark secret. It really was like, I, I couldn't bring myself to say it. And I told this story before too to somebody. While I was in law school, my law school roommate, uh, and I was sitting around one night and he says to me, uh, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? Now, you would think two guys in law school, the answer would be be a lawyer. <laughs> but even lawyers are already plotting to leave the law while they're in law school. So he goes, what would it be? And I said very sheepishly, um, I'm like, it's like I'd be like a writer for David Letterman. And he goes, come on, something realistic. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I, I can't even dream about being a writer. It's not even a realistic dream. I'm not even talking seriously. And I was like, holy shit, if he really knew that I really wanted to do that or something like that, I, you know, he think I lost my mind. And eventually people did. I finally got to the point where I finally, you know, two years in, I, 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 I just did so much soul searching and I started to inch toward the idea of being a writer. Thought, oh, maybe sales, you know, because that's, you know, you're, you, you like to talk to people, you're, you're, and then there's a little voices, and that's not sales, come on. And I thought, you know, advertising, you know, you're good with, like, you know, slogans and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> really not, I don't know why I said that. Uh, but I, I thought I could, I could be a copywriter. And the voice was like, it's not that, what is it? And the deep, dark secret was I wanted to be a sitcom writer. And once I was able to say that out loud, everything changed. The world opened up for me, and I was like, you know what, I, I, I'm going to do this. 
And uh, anybody in your life in New York City that said yes, you can do this? No. <laughs> no, actually, people vehemently said, no, I can't do this. Although the one person who would absolutely tell me I couldn't do it had died a year earlier, and that was my mother. And I, I psychologically, I'm not going to pretend that that wasn't incredibly freeing for me. Because actually, the, the whole thing about Livia, when I, when I got into law school, I called my mother and I said, hey, mommy, <laughs> I got accepted to law school. And she went, oh, Terrence, another one of your harebrained schemes. <laughs> I said law school, not heroin dealing. She's like, oh, okay. You know, so the fact that she died sort of freed me up to be the idiot I am today. Uh, and say, like, this is what I want to do. I want to make, I want to just write stories and make jokes for a living. Did, so that did you know big, that you had to come to L.A., or did you think you can do it in New York? I started playing around with stuff in New York. I hadn't actually written a script, but I started to write a little in New York. And then again, it was one of, the, one of those revelations where one day I said, God, it would be probably a lot easier if I lived in L.A. It's too bad I don't live in L.A. And then I was like, move to L.A. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. But that's, but that's, so, that's a big psychological block for a lot of people, leaving the comfort of what they know mm -hmm. to the big unknown. How'd you get past that? And that's that? a huge a huge leg up for people who do it, there's something really uh, to be said for taking yourself out of your comfort zone because I, when I finally did it, and it was really hard. I mean, I remember my, one of my older sisters, I remember the air, being at the airport, it was like the end of Casablanca. I mean, she's <laughs> crying, bawling, and leaving. And it was her, my best friend, you know, Bobby Canzaneri, and he was saying goodbye. And I remember I got on the plane and I was sitting in, in the back and there was this guy next to me who pulled out the tray table uh, and just put his head like flat on the tray table and sat like that for five hours. Mm. And I just sat there, just apropos of nothing, looking out the window crying. And I, every time I had to go to the bathroom, I had to like wake him up. It was just horrible. And I showed up. I didn't. I'd never been west of Chicago. I didn't hadn't written a script before. So people in my life were like, okay. Let's get this straight. You, you go to vocational, so you study to be an auto mechanic. You go to NYU. You graduate from college. Amazing. You go to law school. No one in the, our, you know, the universe of your family has ever done anything like that. You pass the bar exam. You're on partnership track at a major Manhattan law firm. You're going to quit that to move to L.A. where you've never been to write scripts, and you've never written a script. What kind of plan is this? And I said, I know it sounds crazy. I'm, I'm telling you, this is the right thing. And they said, yeah, you're going to be back here in six months. I said, I really don't think I am. And so when I got here, um, I... Um, what year is this? This is 1991, May of 91. I got here, I took an, uh, a, a room at a place uh, in MacArthur Park. Uh, my friend Bobby's girlfriend at the time worked in a hotel company, and she said, you know, we get discounts on rooms. She goes, it looks pretty good. She goes, it's only $20 a night, but it seems like it, it looks pretty good. I was like, all right, fine. This was like the hotel from Barton Fink. <laughs> but worse, it was like in a gang-infested neighborhood. But, but then the problem, the deceiving thing in L.A., in New York, if you're in a dangerous neighborhood, you know immediately. L.A., there's palm trees everywhere. Everything <laughs> looks great. So you don't know until you're in the middle of getting robbed that, oh, she's in a bad neighborhood. You know, these are some tough guys here. So I showed up at this hotel, and I had, like, all, everything I owned, like, in three bags. And I go in, and this, first of all, I, I said to my friend Robin, who had lived in uh, New Mexico, I said, are people going to know him from New York? <laughs> she's like, in a nanosecond. So I was like, oh, Come on, that's not true. So I walk into the guy. I said, hey, is anybody available to help me with my bags? He goes, well, you're from Brooklyn? <laughs> I said, yeah. He goes, we haven't had a bellman here since 1961, buddy. I was like, all right. So I had to get my stuff. It was horrible. So while I was there, this is, again, pre-internet. 
I get the recycler. Anybody remember the recycler? Is sure. the you know? So I, and I look and I and I uh, find an apartment. I want to live. My friend Robin tells me live in West Hollywood. It's in the middle of everything. What she neglects to tell me is also the gayest place in the world, which was <laughs> fine. Except I didn't know that when I went in. So I find an apartment. It's it's two guys, one, two writers looking for third to share an apartment. So I call up and I add in one who's here. Well, the brother of one is George, John, John Will. Yes. My brother put in a, this is back in the recycler. Yeah. He called up the, for the ad and said, two writers looking for a writer. But they made a mistake and it became writer, R-I-D-E-R. -E <laughs> <laughs> That's. They had motorcyclists. They had people that had, like, uh, that were uh, riders on, on horses, horseback riders. <laughs> That's amazing. And when you showed up, my brother called, the, called up. Didn't even have a horse. And said, you. I want to take this guy right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm taking him right now. That's so, so I, I call up, and, uh, you know, I, I'm now here in, you know, West Hollywood. So, you know, I'm from New York, so I call up, and, uh, again, no idea, you know, West Hollywood, what, what it means. And uh, I, I talked to his brother, and I said, yeah, I mean, we just moved in from New York. And I said, hey, you know, how's the neighborhood over there? Which, you know, in New York, you kind of, he goes, yeah, it's fine. He goes, you know, well, you know, it's Boys Town over here. And I went, yeah, okay, good. And... Uh, <laughs> So the only thing about Boys Town I ever knew was the movie with Spencer Tracy, <laughs> Boys Town, and it's but you know Boys Town was like a home for tough kids. So I thought from, from Brooklyn, I don't give a shit. Fucking, there's probably like some bad kids in the neighborhood. So I pull up and uh, it's on Laurel Avenue, like a couple of blocks from here, Laurel and Romaine. And I pull up to the block to the apartment building, and across the street is a school. And I thought, oh, that must be Boys Town. That's I mean, this is fine. So I take the apartment, and it's his brother and me and this guy Mike Bros. Uh, you know, and it's great, and it's amazing. So I'm, I'm living there for a couple of weeks. I call my friends back home, and they said, "How is it?" I said, "It's really great." I said, "But it's amazing. Every guy is gay in Los Angeles." It's, uh, <laughs> I said, "It's amazing," and I, I, I've never seen anything like this. So <laughs> that was in May. So in June, around the Gay Pride Parade. <laughs> George says to me, you know, there's no parking because of the gay pride parade. I go, I said, well, I, I always park by Boys Town. He goes, what? <laughs> I go, there's always spots by Boys Town. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, this is Boys Town, right? I go, Oh my God, that's what the gay. Oh, all right. And I felt like such a hayseed. And I was like, so that was it. So we lived there for years. And then uh, a year later, where's Chris? Chris moved out, and we got an apartment across the street. So you got here in 91. Yeah. That's right months after the earthquake. There was before the earthquake. The earthquake was 94. Um, I got here in time for the riots, yes, okay. locusts, frogs. Yeah, you, you're here. Anyway, I hit like a couple of like really major ones. Yeah, we Chris and I were sharing an apartment in 1994, the morning of the earthquake. And I remember calling people back home and going, oh, man, was it terrifying? I said, yeah, but it's January 20th, and it's 83 degrees. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, a little bit, but yeah, so... It so, was great. Now, you wanted to be a, a, a sitcom writer of all things. I did, all, partly because I couldn't imagine writing anything that would take an hour to tell. It seemed so unwieldy. Forget about a movie. I mean, how do you tell a story over two? How do you structure a story? But beginning, middle, and end in 22 minutes... Having watched a billion hours of sitcoms as a kid, I thought I can do that. And you know, one of the things I left out 
before I left New York, I thought, you know, about sitcom writing, and I thought, you know, I think I'm funny. And it's sort of like, I remember Mr. Saturday Night with Billy Crystal, he said, you know, you're living funny. You can be funny with your friends and your family. Are you really funny? You can find out by going on a stage. And I did open mic nights in and around New York for a while, and it worked. I wrote my material and I got laughs, enough to say, okay, I can do this. So I had a little bit of confidence, like, okay, so I think I can write a sitcom, and then, so I came here, I stole the Doogie Howser script, <laughs> and I started, so that was, I, I knew a guy, it was a guy in Brooklyn whose uncle's brother's cousin, one of those things, was a grip on Doogie Howser. So I thought, oh, great, I'll write a Doogie Howser spec script, I'll get it to that guy, he'll get it to David E. Kelly, I'll be working on Doogie Howser probably by next month. So that was why, so I needed to know what a Doogie Howser script looked like, Again, I'm sorry. And I started with Doogie Howser's review to get the formatting, and I wrote that, and of course I never got hired on Doogie Howser, and then oh, I second. just started writing specs. When's the last time you saw that script? My sister, this is, this is really, I, I, I sent my sister Joanne, the one who's crying at the airport, a copy of it. It was the first thing I ever wrote, and I wrote on it, hey, you know, I'm on the road to the Emmys. <laughs> and when I won my first Emmy, she sent that back uh, to me. She said, I just found this. I'm... I'm Sorry. No, um, no. I mean, yeah, and I was like, I hadn't seen that in years, and it was like such a weird thing to write. How good or how bad is it? I think it's pretty good. No. I think, I think, it, yeah, I really do. I think it, I would have hired me. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's it's actually. I understood how to set up and pay off a joke. I I understood, you know. Again, this is a billion hours in front of a TV set. And I wish my mother was alive, too, to say, like, all those times when you say, what are you wasting your time watching TV for? It's like, this is graduate school. The Munsters is more important. As it turns out, the Munsters were more important than trigonometry in my life because that taught me how to do this. And the honeymooners and all that other stuff, that was time well spent, assuming. You know, when people bash TV, I always have to remind them, TV paid for the house you're sitting in right now. Mm -hmm. TV is putting my kids through college. TV has been really good to this family. So, yeah, you shouldn't do anything for 18 hours a day, including watch TV, but it's not the boogeyman unless you make it that. You know, we have a lot of ground to cover, and I'm yeah, really ahead. enjoying this conversation. Thank you. But I, I know of a story. I, I heard it on a podcast that it was so inspiring to me that it made me get out of bed earlier in the morning. How you got your first quote-unquote agent yeah. <laughs> so I get here and um, I start writing spec scripts and, you know, I, I start cold calling people. I bought the Hollywood Producers Directory and I would call, I literally the first page, Adam Productions. It was John Ritter's company and his partner was a guy named Bob Myman who is now a very uh, popular entertainment attorney. At the time he was John Ritter's producing partner. And I would just cold call people and say, hey, my name's Terry Winter. I just got here. Would you mind, can I come in and meet you for five minutes and just pick your brain? I'm just trying to figure out how to be a writer. Would you give me like five minutes of your time? And, you know, my philosophy was you know, and it's funny, my wife is fond of saying, this is always no until you ask. And my philosophy is most people are nice, actually. And 50% of the time, people go, yeah, all right, sure, I'll give you five minutes. And the people who say no, who's like, all right, fine, no harm, no foul, whatever. So Bob Miner was nice enough to say, yeah, come meet me, you know, 2.30 next week. So I literally just got in here and I showed up wearing a suit and tie. And I walk in and he goes, you want to be a writer? And I went, yeah, he goes, all right, lose the suit and tie. I go, oh, great, this is, this is exactly the kind of information I need. Because you never have to wear a suit and tie again. I said, this is great. Because you wear whatever you want. And we sat and he gave me. So I, I would keep doing that, you know, and, and I started to meet people and get advice here and there about what to write. I also asked Bob Marmon, I said, I have a Doogie Howser script, would you like to read it? He said, oh, God, please, no. 
<laughs> I don't. And I said, all right, good. Well, thanks for being honest. So, I, you know, I, I started cold calling agents and, and, you know, people would read my stuff and say, yeah, you know, you got something here. I think you're really talented. So, you know, the problem is, you know, you'd call an agent and I call, you know, I get somebody on the phone from UTA or CAA and, you know, get the guy and I say, yeah, I'm from Brooklyn and, you know, I had a, a good story and they say, all right, good, send me your stuff. Send it to them. I'd call a week later. Yeah, I haven't gotten to you. Yeah, call me next week. All right, another week would go by. Two weeks later, finally get the guy on the phone again. Who are you again? We talked a month ago. I'm the guy from Brooklyn. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I get like 500 scripts a month. And, and I was like, I, God damn it. I was like, you know, it would kill me because finally, I finally found the thing in life I really wanted to do. I knew this was it. I want to be a writer. This is my life. And I, up until that point, every single thing I'd ever set out to get, I could get. I knew how to get it. I figured out, and I thought, this is going to be the one thing I never get. And I remember standing on the roof of our building on Romaine Street with Chris. I'd, I'd come so close to getting hired as an agent. I think he thought I was going to jump off the roof. <laughs> and and I, it fell through. Like, we just signed another guy, and it was like, and I, and I, did, I was so naive. I was, it was only a year after I got here, but I was, like, crushed. And I remember standing on the roof just going, oh, fuck, I'm going to be that guy. 20 years from now, people are going to go, remember that guy, Terry Winter? Yeah, he was talented. Never got hired. Never got an agent. And I remember then just going, you know what? Fuck it. I got to work harder. I, I, I don't know how, but how I got How old were you then? 30. You feeling old then at 30? Oh, ancient, yeah. Ticking clock. Like, fuck, you know, like all oh, those years that went by. And I, you know, I don't really regret going to law school, but I think, God, well, what if I was out here when I was 23? It would have been different or whatever. So there was no margin for error. You know, even, uh, you know, when I first got here, friends would go, hey, we're going to the Dodger game. And I'd say, I'm not going to the, I, I don't I don't have time to go to the Dodger game. I didn't come here to go to the Dodger game. I came here to make, be a writer. And it's so funny putting things in perspective, too. I remember some friends of mine were going to Vegas and <laughs> they said, they they said, we're going to Vegas. And I said, I can't go to Vegas until I'm like financially sound. I need like at least $2,000 in the <laughs> <laughs> At that point, it's like literally paycheck to paycheck. It's like if I had $2,000, I would go. But it was really like, you know, we, I was stealing sweet and lows from norms. So we would go to norms. I mean, literally, that's how bad it was. Like really like desperado shit. Like we were just, but it was so mercenary. I was like, I lived, breathed, and ate being a writer. So the, but anyway, the one thing I could not get was an agent. And I finally said, how? I've got to do it. So here's the, the Writers Guild to the rescue again. I come here, I come back to the library, I see the old lady. And uh, I said, hey, do you have a list of agents or something? So she said, yeah. She said, you're the guy who stole the Dougie Hills. I said, no, no. You're missing me up with somebody else. She gives me a list of agents who will take unsolicited scripts. Usually if you send a script, as many of you probably know, you send a script to an agent unsolicited, it'll come back unopened. So this is a list of new agents or people who will actually read scripts and want to you know, entice new clients. Complete coincidence. There's a guy on the list named Doug Viviani. Do not call him. <laughs> he's a guy sat four seats away from me through law school for four years. And he's he's listed as an agent. And so I call him up. I said, what are you doing? You're an agent now? He goes, no, I'm actually a real estate attorney. But I had a client who wrote a book on real estate, and I used my fee to get bonded as an agent. I said, great. Congratulations, you're my agent. <laughs> I said, I need an agent. And here's how it works. I, I, they won't read my scripts unless they come in from an agent. So I'm going to create the Doug Viviani Agency. And I'm going to photocopy my scripts. And I'm going to voicemail system and a letterhead and mailbox, et cetera, suite 312, you know. And that's what we're going to do. So I'm paying for everything. And if I get anything, I'll give you 10%. So we said, great. We're in business. So I create the Doug Viviani Agency out of the West Hollywood branch of the mailbox, et cetera, on Crescent Heights. And uh, so do the whole thing. I was working at that time. I, I, I had taken my law degree off my resume and was working as a paralegal for Unical, the oil company. I just wanted a job where I could have like a mindless nine to five job. So I, I 
they, they didn't even know I was a lawyer. They thought I was like the smartest paralegal ever. <laughs> Once a month, my boss would say, you should go to law school. I'm like, oh, not really a good student. But anyway, I, I stayed there late one night and I photocopied like hundreds of scripts. I sent, I, I, I went to every, this was back in, you know, now 1992, 93, when you could do this, I would pull onto the lot of Warner Brothers and say, yeah, I'm the messenger from the Doug Viviani agency. I need to drop off these scripts. I'm like, all right, go ahead. And I'd be on the lot and I hit every sitcom office in LA and there's like 30 of them a ton. This is in the TGIF years when there was Full House and Family Matters and you name it. Everything from the highbrow shows to the lowest to the low and I hit it. So now my scripts, you know, I'd walk in, there'd be some kid at the desk go, yeah, hi, I'm the messenger of Doug Viviani. And, and then my scripts are now in the building where theoretically somebody, if they read them and liked them and lightning struck, I could maybe get hired. So I was like, all right, this is a step up. And the one thing I also, the other deal I made with myself, I would never go to sleep at night unless I did something that day to make my writing career closer to happening. So I'd lay in bed and i go, what did you do today? Did you call somebody? Did you write something? Did you mail a script out? And if the answer is no, I got up out of bed and I did something. So I could go to bed with the comfort, the relative comfort of knowing I'm this much closer to making this happen. You got to work every day. And I, so every day I did something. So now it's like, okay, the scripts are out there in the world. Two weeks go by. I get a call on the Doug Viviani answering machine. It's a Friday afternoon. It's like 4.15. Yeah, hi, Doug. This is Winifred Harvey Stallworth. I'm the executive producer of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I read Terry Winter's scripts. I think he's got some talent. We'd like to maybe have him in to pitch some ideas. I went, holy shit. Oh, my God. Call Doug in New York. It's Friday. It's now 7.30 in New York. He's gone for the weekend. So, I'm, oh, I don't wait well. I'm very impatient. And I said, you know what? He doesn't know anything about being an agent, really. <laughs> Why do I need to wait for him? I can just be him. I'll be Doug. <laughs> and the problem is, I, he doesn't know anything really about being an agent. I know the only agent I ever knew is Ruben Kincaid from the Partridge family. So I'm like, I could do that. So I just, I'm, I'm going to wing it. If it gets weird, I'm just going to say, oh, hold on. Mel Gibson just walked in and just put it on. I'll think of something. You know, I, I, so I just called her. I said, hey, it's Doug Viviani. She goes, oh, yeah, you know, Red Terry Winter scripts. Yeah, really, you know, talented, et cetera. Um, she said, you know, Fresh Prince is kind of a teenage-oriented show. Does he have, like, one more spec that's kind of teenage -y? I said, oh, my God, he just finished the best Wonder Years episode I've ever read. <laughs> Bullshit. She had everything I had written at that point. She goes, yeah, that's great. When can I read it? I go, God, it's Friday. Oh, Terry's at his beach house for the weekend. Um, <laughs> maybe, uh, so I'm doing the math in my head. Uh, it's Friday, uh, Tuesday, late afternoon. She goes, yeah, great, fine. So I go, okay, great. So I hang up. The writer's guild was closed, so I couldn't steal a script. Uh, I go to Hollywood Boulevard, and there used to be guys who would sell scripts for $5. And I go, you got a Wonder Years episode? I wanted to see the formatting. So I took it home. I studied, okay, this is how, what a Wonder Years script looks like. And from Friday till Tuesday, I cranked out a Wonder Years episode. We, um, I, I then, Tuesday afternoon, I threw the baseball hat back on. So now I'm the agent, the writer, the messenger. So I sort of flung it in the door at Fresh Prince and, and ran out. And they had had me in and I pitched a bunch of ideas and one of which they bought uh, and this is foreshadowing my later work it involved Will Smith's character getting into a fight <laughs> in a restaurant uh, and they liked it and then ultimately NBC killed the story up the line but it was my first entree into the business. Years later, two of the people in that room was a guy named David Simon and his partner Leslie Ray and Sam Art Williams, another uh, huge sitcom writer. 
uh, years later, David and Leslie hired me on a show called Sister Sister, and they said when they hired me, you came this close to getting hired on Fresh Prince. You didn't know it. When you left that room, we said we got to hire this guy, and I thank God I didn't know because I would have killed myself. <laughs> and we called, we called, and they, we just didn't have it in the budget, but we wanted to bring you on staff. And I was like, oh, it was another two years before I got my break. Um, it's funny, just the the, the uh, mailbox etc. story. My friend Chris came out from New York. Followed me out a year later, and Chris, you know, his deep dark secret is he wanted to be an actor, and now he is. He's he's probably best known as the guy who killed Jip Rossetti on Boardwalk Empire. Stand up, knife yeah. in the back. So he comes out from New York, and he wants to be an actor, and he doesn't know anything about being an actor. So he goes, "Well, how do I start?" I said, "Well, you need a resume and a picture." He said, "Well, how do I get that?" I go, "I don't know. Look, if I were doing this, I would get a resume and a, somebody else's resume that does." shit that you look like you could do and I'd say that you did it. He goes, what are you? I said, what are you? I said, Backstage Magazine, I knew you could call Backstage and put a, f a free ad in if you were f doing like an independent film. So I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to call up Backstage. I'm going to say I'm a producer named Harry Busby. And Harry Busby, we had a book of old 19th century mugshot photos and there's a guy named Harry Busby in it who looked like me, so that was like my alias. So, <laughs> he had a big handlebar mustache. So I said, yeah, I'm a producer named Harry Busby. I'm doing a script a, uh, a movie about uh, corruption in New York Police Department. I need some actors. All right, what do you need? I said, how, how tall are you? 6'2". 6'2", uh, 190, Italian-American guy. And I need another guy to play a cop. I describe him again. So I hang up. I go, great. We'll get like you know, a dozen resumes. You'll, you'll pick one. Great. You know, you, whatever they had, you just say, no one's going to check this shit. I walk into the mailbox, et cetera, a week later. The woman behind the counter is this little Indian woman. She goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? I go, what? She goes, these boxes, like 10,000 resumes of Italian, not just Italian Americans, Chinese guys, women, naked people, <laughs> actors will respond to anything. I mean, it's like, holy shit. So we were like, God, we could use this to meet girls. We could like say that we're, and I was like, I, we can't do that. So we, then we never did. Um, but we thought it would be not a bad idea. Anyway, so... Um, yeah, so anyway, I got uh, right around the Fresh Prince thing. A month later, I got into something called the Warner Brothers Sitcom Writers Workshop, which still operates today and Big is deal. an absolute godsend. Uh, they take, at the time, I don't know how they do it now, they took about 15 people from around 1,000 from around the country, and they put you through a 10-week training program, the idea being that they'll put you on one of their shows at the end. Um, took me three years to get in. The first year I applied, I, I don't think I was ready. Second year, uh, I had written a Steinfeld spec that everybody who read it went, oh my God, this is like an episode of the show. It's so great. So I submit it, and I don't get in. And I was like, God, man, I really thought I had a good shot. So I called up, and this is, again, don't be shy. Pick up the phone. I called up, you know, very politely, and I said, hey, can I talk to the person who runs the program? I said, look, I'm trying to get better at this. I said, can you... Give me my coverage just to see. I want to see where I went wrong. People seem to really respond to that script. I'm not sure where I fell short. And the guy said, right, hold on. I said, what's your name? I gave him a name. He comes back on a few minutes later. He goes, I, I don't even know how to tell you this. I go, what? He goes, let me read you the coverage. You know, this Seinfeld spec hits every beat of the show. It reads like a produced episode, the character development, the story structure, etc. And then there's boxes where you check dialogue, 100%, character, 100%, story structure. He goes, it's like one of the best pieces of coverage I've ever read. I said, what's the problem? He goes, at the bottom, it says, do you recommend this person for the program, yes or no? Neither box is checked. Whoever, whoever did it forgot to check the box. 
I go, what do I do? He goes, if I were you, I'd submit this again next year. I go, next year? I go, it's, it, he goes, it's all, the program's already starting. I said, oh, fuck. All right. So that's another. I was back on the roof. <laughs> and I was like, I don't believe this. I was like, I should be in. So, but a year later, I get to the program, and it's, you know, now 1994. And I go through the 10-week thing, and I do well. And I, they call me at the end, and they said, we have an interesting situation. We have a show we think you'd be really great for. I said, what is it? They said, well, it's, it's not a comedy, and this is no reflection on your comedy writing. I said, well, what is it? They said, well, it's about a blue-collar guy who's a lawyer who works for a stuffy law firm. Do you think you could write that? And I said, this is my life story. And it was created, co-created by Frank Renzulli, uh, who's friends with my friend Mikey over there. And uh, that was my first job. And uh, unfortunately, the show... They put us. It was developed under one regime at Fox, and then killed by the subsequent regime. They put us on the air against 60 Minutes on Sunday nights, and they was like, "Oh, gee, guys, you're not getting any ratings," and uh, the show was gone. But that was my first job, and then I went on from there to you know a million. Well, your other. early IMDb is nearly as schizophrenic as mine. Yeah, you have done so many eclectic things. Can you just give us one learning life writing character professional story out of? A couple of names I'll give you. Out of the Cosby Mysteries. <laughs> the Cosby Mysteries was my second job. Uh, it was co-created by George Skank and Frank Cardia, uh, who co-created The Great Defender. I'm sorry, Cosby Mysteries wasn't co-created by them. They took it over from the original show. They co-created my first job. Anyway, when they left The Great Defender, they got hired to take over The Cosby Mysteries. They said, do you want to... Do you want to join us? And I said, yeah. My, my standards for taking a job at that time where you had to ask me, do you want this job? And I would say, yes, I do. And they said, it's a cosmic issue. I don't care what it is. This is great. I couldn't believe, I still can't believe I get paid to do this. Seriously, this is, I, I feel like I don't have a job and haven't for 25 years. That, at that point, it was incredible. I remember getting my writer's go card and just thinking, oh, I, I can get hit by a truck now and I, I'll die happy. So we go to New York to do the Cosmic Mysteries. And the Cosmic Mysteries was a, uh, show as a drama where Bill Cosby was a like a forensic police detective who solved murders and solved crimes and it's not a comedy but it's a kind of a comedy <laughs> if you go back and watch it now inadvertently it was Bill Cosby Rita Moreno and James Naughton and the problem was and you know all low hanging Bill Cosby fruit jokes aside he was absolutely lovely man really nice to everybody but he was a comedian and as a comedian his instinct is to ad lib and riff and the one of the conventions of the murder mystery is at the end of it the 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 detective usually says, well, Larry, I knew it was you because you're holding the microphone in your right hand and you're a lefty and your shoes are untied and, you know, you break down the whole thing. This is how I caught you. So Bill Cosby would come in and not know his lines and he'd go, oh, Larry, why are you whizzing around and you murder over here? And he, he'd do like 10 minutes and never mention the thing about the microphone. And... Uh, we'd get the footage back and go, shit, he didn't say the thing. And then we'd say, all right, well, now we have to rewrite the scene. And then he'd leave. He'd say, uh, we'd say, well, Mr. Cosby, uh, you know, the thing about the microphone. He'd go, I know. He'd go, I, I got a thing. I got to go to Paris. And he'd leave and he'd go leave for three days. He'd go, well, give that to Rita. Let Rita do that. So we had to write another scene where Rita Marina would come in after they caught the murder and go, you know, Mr. Cosby told me that he caught the murder because Larry's right here. <laughs> and you watch these shows, you're like, man. So that only made it like 18 episodes then. So that was it. But it, Great guy. Right. I mean, very what, nice. What uh, life lessons from Flipper? Uh, Flipper, I, I learned that uh, you have a 24-episode order 
to write stories about a dolphin that there are exactly only 10 stories in the world that organically involve a dolphin. <laughs> and when you get to the 10th one and then you still have 14 more to go, it's really hard. Uh, I remember sitting home on like 4th of July weekend and I had a script to write and uh, my... I forget the name of it. Oh, I, I well, another. I, I, I'm trying to write the script, and I I never quit anything in my life. And I was in the middle of writing it, and I had no idea what a dolphin. I had there's like a macro on my computer. Flipper emits a series of clicks and whistles because Flipper can't talk. So whenever Flipper would react, you just say Flipper emits a series of clicks and whistles. And my writing uh, roommate was Allie Adler, who co-created Supergirl. Whenever she emails me, she'll still sign off clicks and whistles. Allie, XO. <laughs> XL. And uh, she and I would just sit and play poker all day. Ernie, uh, God, I'm trying to think of his name. I'm blanking on uh, Ernie's name. We ran the show. I'll come to you later. We were very uh, hands-on guy. He used to like to write everything himself. But anyway, I was, I was tasked with writing my first Flipper script, and I was home, and I, I could not... These characters would not speak to me. I don't know what a dolphin expert says. I certainly don't know what a dolphin would say except clicks and whistles. And I was ready to quit. And Frank Renzulli called me up. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm preparing my resignation letter for Flipper. He goes, what are you, crazy? I said, I can't do it. He goes, listen to me. Sit down, shut the computer, go for a walk around the block, come home and do your fucking job. And I went, all right. And I came home and I did my job. And I said, and I called him back. I said, I'm, I'm going to take you out. When this is over, I'm taking you out to uh, what's the what's the steak restaurant with everybody's picture on the wall? Um, oh, that God. place, the Palm. the Palm. And we did. The great thing is, and the blessing, as it turned out, was a month later, uh, the show was produced by Sam Goldwyn Jr., the, the son of the original Sam Goldwyn. And Sam Goldwyn, as it turned out, had put a lot of his own money into the show, apparently. And he wasn't happy with how the scripts were turning out. So uh, Ernie uh, had called me out to his house in Calabasas, and he said, guy, guy, you know, it's, it's so horrible. I met with Sam, and he wants me to fire the whole writing staff. And I've never been fired for anything in my life. And he said, um, you know, I feel awful, and you, know, you, and, you and Allie, and everybody else is so great and of course you know you'll get paid 50 cents on the dollar on your contract and then I was like well, what does that mean he goes well you'll whatever we owe you for the rest of the year you'll get half of that in one big check I was like you're gonna pay me tens of thousands of dollars to not have to come back and write over <laughs> I was like holy shit <laughs> and I was like you're not unhappy I'm unhappy I said you kidding me I kissed him I walked out I never had that much money at one time in my life and it was it was actually great it was ended up being fired I, when I first got to Flipper I pitched, a, a jokingly pitched an idea um, that Flipper, it was set off the Florida Keys, that Flipper came upon a, uh, a missile that was left over from the Cuban Missile Crisis that had fallen on the seabed, and Flipper got involved, and it was nuclear, and bad guys were trying to get, and we all had a good laugh about it in the writer's room. Somewhere around episode 16, Ernie turned to me and goes, what was that thing about the <laughs> missile thing? And we did that episode, you can look on IMDb, it's called Flipper Missile Crisis, and Flipper found a missile from, and the other, another episode I pitched and we did it was just just came from a title it was called that's a moray m-o-r-a-y and i said that would be a great episode and we somehow figured out to do an episode about a moray eel so that's, nothing gets wasted no it's all it's all yeah you make soup one more right. one more uh what does xena teach you about being a writer uh that i i have absolutely no capacity to write fiction fantasy stuff i that that you really should pick and choose your jobs a little more wisely. They were so nice to me. I, I, I got the 
I had the, the incredible good fortune to, to be in the room with Sam Raimi, R.J. Stewart, Rob Tappert, as they were developing Xena. R.J. Stewart was one of the original writers on The Great Defender, so when he went off to do Xena, he, he said, God, why don't you come on? So it was funny. I was, I was like an embarrassment of riches. I just finished my first job, and I just finished The Cosby Mysteries, and um, I was offered Flipper and Xena. And I called my agent at the time, and I said, you know, I got these two job offers. What do I do? And he goes, well, you got to take Flipper. I go, well, but everybody's really talking about the Xena thing. He goes, Terry. Flipper is like a national icon. It's a national treasure. Everybody knows what Flipper is. He goes, Xena, warrior, princess. He goes, repeat that out loud five times and then call me back. So I go, all right, I guess you're right. You know, so anyway, Xena goes on to be this monster hit. But I, I wrote a couple of freelance episodes for them. And it was so, it was really hard. It was really a struggle for me. Again, just a world I didn't connect to. Um, Flipper too. You know, so I, you know, I learned like, okay, stop just saying yes to things. Just think for a beat. Can I do this? Do I want to do this? So, um, you know, that was that was actually a good lesson. Actually, it's funny for the people who are Xena fans. If you go on the Xena website where they rate every episode, my episodes are literally the worst ones. I'm not kidding. Not ashamed to admit, they're always like consistently the shittiest Xena episodes. So, well, sorry. How did you become a white writer on a black sitcom? Um, I wrote a spec of uh, news radio that somehow got to Larry Wilmore and Larry and Steve Tompkins had created oh you talking about the PJs or yeah. Sister Sister oh either one either one well Sister Sister was David Simon and Leslie Ray who were running that show and the PJs they read my news radio script and I got I got hired on that um, those guys were, were great and um, I, I was really fortunate to work on the PJs which is this filmation show uh, that where Eddie Murphy started was a character named Thurgood Stubbs who is the superintendent of a housing project in Brooklyn really funny show really edgy social satire there's a character who's a, a crack addict who lived in a dumpster with a big twitchy eye and I mean, he's like really like pushing the envelope and um, the problem was the show you know Fox was really terrified of anybody who would write letters complaining and oh you know it's racist and you know Larry Lumor used to go crazy and I remember him even going on TV and saying like well, it's racist to show Thurgood uh, drinking uh, malt liquor. And who, 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 Homer Simpson, King of the Hill. Every, wh why is it pr a problem for us to depict the same sort of guy, except, you know, it's now you're making a big deal about the fact that, that he's African American. So it was very frustrating. I think it was frustrating for Fox and scary for Fox. So we did a lot of reruns, a lot of really late nights. So right around that time, my agent called me up and he goes, I'm going to send you the videotape of a pilot of a new show, dating myself, a videotape. And I said, what is it? He goes, it's something called The Sopranos. I said, what, opera? Why, why me? And he goes, just watch it. I said, all right. I watched it. I don't even think I finished it. And I was trembling. And I called him up and I said, oh my God, you got to get me on this show. I know these guys. And, you know, Brooklyn and the butcher shop, just the world I came from. I said, I totally understand this world. I know how these guys think. You know, you got to get me on this show. He goes, well, you know, I'll see. I said, Scott, you got to get me on this show. My second call was to Frank Winzuli, who co-created uh, The Great Defender. Frank grew up in Boston, very similar environment. And I said, have you seen this thing? He said, yeah, and I've seen it. I'm actually meeting with this guy, David Chase, on Friday. Frank, at the time, uh, became the last writer David hired for season one. And then the doors closed, and that was at the staff. It was fully staffed. So I sat out season one as a fan, and Frank would come home every day, and I'd call him, and he'd tell me about the writer's room, and he'd send me scripts they were 
working on it. I was editing his scripts and suggesting lines. So I was kind of writing on The Sopranos in the first season and, you know, and just, just being so jealous. So finally when season two came along, Frank said to David, and I think pretty much the entire first year writing staff got jettisoned except Frank and Robin Green and Mitch Burgess, but everybody else got fired. So David wanted to bring on some more writers and he said, all right, who's this guy? So David met me and he gave me an opportunity to write a, you know, he gave me a spec episode, not a spec episode, a freelance episode. And he liked it and then he called me, I was working on the PJs and there was a, there was a lot of defections going on at the PJs at the time. People were leaving because again, it was, it was a really tough job. There were people working. We were, I can't tell you how many times we drive home and with the sun coming up. It was just really grueling and people were leaving different shows and you know, I knew I was, I, there was a possibility to get this Soprano. So um, about three writers within a span of two weeks left the show and Larry and Steve were nice enough to let people break their contracts. So finally, I got the offer for the Sopranos and I walked into Larry and Steve and I said, I got to talk to you guys and I went, no, no, forget it, don't even say it. I said, I, guys, it's, it's a really important job offer. It's, it's, it's a, finally, Larry was like, what is it? I said, it's The Sopranos. He went, God fucking damn it. <laughs> he goes, I'm not going down in history as the asshole who stopped you from working on The Sopranos. Go, okay. He goes, any other show? I would say no. And then it's so funny, again, dating myself on the way out the door. He goes, you got to get me the videotapes of the whole first season. <laughs> and I went, done. You got it. And uh, What was it like was being it. on one of those shows? One of those shows that you can't walk through Ralph's without, without people talking about it. Oh, I was terrified when I got on it because I thought you know, the first season had just just hit it, it, they were just rerunning the first season when I got it so this thing came in under the radar and then the word spread and then the second run was when people really started to discover it became really popular and then I got hired on it and, the, and it was me and Todd Kessler who went on to create Bloodline and um, blanking on his other show um, thank you damages and Todd and I got hired and we, we shared an office together and we said God this show better be as good the second year because they're going to look what changed they're going to know these two idiots <laughs> and so it was really scary like to keep up the uh, the quality and it was hard to tell and luckily you know it, it, it worked so you know, y your job as a writer, any job, any writer on the show is to replicate the showrunner's voice what is David Chase's voice and then what is your voice uh, D David, the one thing I, one of the biggest things I learned from David was to stop writing jokes. Um, trust your own voice. Trust that you don't have to set up a funny piece of dialogue to pay it off. That these guys are funny already. You're funny already. Just write reality. So I, it took me a while to just pull back from trying to be funny and just let the comedy come organically and to trust it. Um, the Sopranos for me was like the first thing I ever read that I thought, and, and it's funny with Frank Rizzoli. Um, if you know Frank, he never worked on anything that was as funny as he was in person. And it's funny, he's an actor as well, and the real guy is always more interesting than anybody he's portraying. And it's, it's always a letdown to see him act, because in real life, he's so much funnier and so much more charismatic, literally the best storyteller I've ever met in my life. And I know people say, like, I, I almost peed my pants. He came within a... <laughs> couple of syllables of making me pee in my pants laughing that's how funny this guy is and you've met him you know and you guys know him he's so unbelievably funny so when the Sopranos came along he started writing the Sopranos I went this is the first thing I've ever read that's pure Frank this is his voice completely like he opened up a vein and it's on, on the page is real is exactly how people talk uh, they, they lie to each other they don't say what they mean they it's all subtext it's all stops and starts I mean sometimes actors on the show 
new actors will say, God, this dialogue's so hard to memorize because it doesn't flow like most TV network dialogue, which is very beginning, middle, and end. It all follows logically. We, none of us ever speak that well. It's always stops and starts in half sentences, and that's how we tried to write it, and that's how David wrote it, and that's what I tried to replicate. Is that your voice as well? I think it is. You know, it was pretty... I, I didn't feel like I ever had to... I think I just sat down and wrote that. Um, you know, I mean, I wrote really quickly. I wrote um, the episode Long Term Parking in three days. I just sat down and wrote it. And uh, it was just sort of... It just felt very natural to me. I it just felt like episode. I yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, but it just was very. Uh, it just I just felt like I understood it. I understood those guys. I never had to research anything, or you know. You know, one of the episodes that <coughs> I think for a lot of audiences, they understood what the show was was Pine Barrens. That was that was another. Can you one. walk us through the the you know the the process of how that came together? Sure. Um, it was in season two. Uh, Todd Kessel and I were sitting out in the open area in our writer's room, and our, one of our directors, Tim Van Patten, got off the uh, elevator, and uh, he was prepping an episode, and Todd and I were there, and he goes, what are you guys doing? I said, oh, we're just, we're just kind of kicking around ideas for episodes, and he goes, I had an idea, and uh, he goes, I had a dream, and I said, well, what is it? He goes, oh, it's, it's stupid, and I said, it can't be anywhere near as stupid as the stuff we're talking about, why don't you just tell me? He goes, all right, I had a dream that Paulie and Christopher took a guy into the woods to kill him, and, and, he, and then they got lost. I said, that's great. I said, that's a great idea. He goes, you think so? I said, yeah. I said, go, go pitch it to David. He's in his office. He goes, oh, I'm not pitching it to David. I said, I'm, I'm going in. I'm pitching it to David right now. So I knocked on the door. I said, you got to hear this idea Timmy had. So um, I pitched it to him. He goes, oh, my God, let's do it. And then he's like, looked at the board, and he's like, ah, oh, shit. We were already like in the episode 10 of season two. He goes, all right, well, we'll do it next year. We'll do it in season three. So when we came back for season three, we stuck it in I think it was like the ninth episode of the third season and you hire your directors well in advance too so you know because you're scheduling things out so David wanted to hire Steve Buscemi as a director whose uh, films he had admired he did a movie called Trees Lounge uh, that David really liked and that uh, there was a lot of our the Sopranos cast was in Trees Lounge so anyway, we hired Steve Buscemi to do the uh, show, and he was just blocked in for episode nine, whatever episode nine would turn out to be. As it turned out, it was Pine Barrens. So um, it was just amazing fun to write. By that point, um, you know, again, what I said earlier, like my favorite humor is two guys under pressure at each other's throats. So you take those two characters and put them in the woods in a very high-pressure situation where they're locked in a van, and it's like you can't help the comedy from and then those two guys were just Michael Imperioli and Tony Sirico together were just gold so it was great we shot it in uh, near West Point uh, we scouted that location right before Christmas uh, I guess of 2000 or 1999 I'm not sure and uh, it hadn't snowed and the last thing we said to each other was alright as long as it doesn't snow we'll be fine <laughs> and we leave and it's a massive blizzard and actually the blizzard was just ending the first day of shooting if you watch that episode when they're marching the Russian guy into the woods there's snow falling and he sticks out his tongue and catches a snowflake on his tongue that was the last snowfall from that blizzard it just stopped and we went roll and the snow, I did a quick rewrite to accommodate the fact that now they're in snow, and it just amped up everything a thousand percent. And, you know, David was like, well, why don't they just follow their footsteps? I said, well, 
All right, logic police. I said, yeah, I, I believe me, I can get lost in the snow, footsteps or no footsteps, trust me. And he's like, all right, fine, let's just go and do it. And uh, so we were out there for like five days. It was like a class trip. And it was great, too, because we would only shoot during the daytime. Cause we, so we wrapped by four in the afternoon. We were staying in this great hotel in uh, in West Point. And it was like this big party every night. And then I got homework because I had to do a rewrite on episode 11. So I was like, I'd hang out, and then I'd have to go back to my room and write. But it was really fun to do. And then we shot the rest of it uh, at Silver Cup in, in Queens. How many episodes of The Sopranos did you write all together? 25. So is the 25th one easier or harder to write than the first one? I think it's a little harder because there's 24 episodes that you can't do that you already did. It's certainly harder to think and keep the show fresh because you've done pretty much everything. And that's when we we started to feel like, uh, you know, if we start to get repetitive, it's over. And, uh, you know, the truth is, you know, and I said this to David at the time, if you said to me we're doing five more seasons of the show, I'd say where do I sign? That said, I think it's time to end it too. The, the, I, I agree with you that it's time. Um, but it was a, the greatest experience. It is the experience in my career that everything I ever do will be compared to by me. Uh, it was just a golden time. And not just because people loved the show and responded to it. It was just the people I worked with, the, the friends I made. Uh, it was just an, an incredible time. I mean, it was really, I felt like I really blossomed as a writer. And it was just, it was just incredible. That's a seminal show for HBO and for television. Yeah. Uh, and we had Andy Schneider here a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy was and great. he said something really uh, honest and, and perceptive. He said, even with a credit like that, they age over time. And at a certain point, you just got to like move on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I never, I haven't seen the show since it went off the air. You know, it's funny. I just, and that was I got from David. Um, he just said, "Just move on. Just don't look back." And I've never had people go, oh, God, I started rewatching The Sopranos. And I used to be the go-to guy. David used to call me and say, what episode did we do such and such? And I'd say, oh, that was uh, episode 302 and so and this guy's character. I, I can't remember now which happened when and character names and stuff. But and same thing with Boardwalk. I haven't watched that again either, and I don't think I ever will. Maybe I will with my kids one day. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't, I just, it's been off the air almost 10 years. I think 10 years exactly, or it'll be 10 years next year. Uh, but, yeah, I just, I just kind of want to leave it where it is. Now, I have a question for myself because I'm curious. Sure. You have an amazing career, but the first day you meet Martin Scorsese, is it like, uh, or is it air pumping? It was air pumping quietly on the inside, trying not to be like a giddy, you know, kid. I mean, Martin Scorsese truly was the reason I started doing this. Taxi Driver is the movie I can point to and draw a straight line between that and my writing career. In 1976, when that came out, my friend Bobby Canzanari, who I've referred to before, who's not here, he and I... Uh, had a vague notion of wanting to be in show business. This was again, way before, again, I said I didn't want to get in the business. Not really quite true. Bobby said he, he wanted to get in show business, and he kind of dragged me on to, uh, along with him. And he said there's an acting troupe in Brooklyn uh, called the Silver Mask Players. And uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I said that. He said we should go into Greenwich Village and get take acting lessons. And I said, you know what, no. I, I went to you know my Catholic grammar school. To, one of the teachers runs this program called the Silver Mask Players, and they put on shows. It's like right in Brooklyn. Why do we have to go all into the city? So it turned out to be this like really Christian uh, organization that put on like really wholesome shows like Charlie's Aunt and uh, Mame and stuff. They, they thought West Side Story was too edgy. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> 
so we we joined this thing reluctantly. We actually had to get haircuts. We had to like get it was like the really weird. But we did it. We were like, okay, I guess this is what it is. We got like, really long hair and I had to get like a marine haircut and, and it was so goofy and stupid. I had to sing there's this song Darktown Starters Ball at a at a block party and then they used to make us do these performances like at old age homes and stuff. <laughs> it was funny. One night we were walking down the street and it was in the middle of the summer and I had pains in my stomach going there. So I knew I'd have to sing again. And uh, Bobby turned to me and he went fuck this let's just go see taxi driver again <laughs> and i went yeah fuck it and we never went back and i never went back to i turned my back on show business and until years later but we went to see taxi driver and that was the movie that made me start thinking about movies as something different than just something to do i, I never seen i had never seen a movie like that i never seen uh, a, a protagonist like that I, I never seen editing like that it felt like different than other movies and i wondered why and who's this martin scorsese guy so that was the thing that got me interested in movies so to flash forward 25 years and get a call from hbo hey you're going to martin scorsese's house to meet him to talk about the show I I, really, I was like a girl who got invited to the prom by the captain of the football team. I was like, what should I wear? And well, I, you know, I got there like a half hour early and walked around the block. What wine should I bring? They told me I was I was invited to dinner erroneously. Uh, I, I so I show up and it's like the meeting's like nine thirty at night and I thought oh I had heard he's a night owl you know so great you know this is, how cool is this so I go there and Marty's wife uh, you know answers the door and she said you know I'll come on in uh, and I have my bottle of wine and she goes you know Marty Marty had oral surgery I said oh really when she goes this afternoon I went oh my god oh okay and I came up and. It, you know, he came and I said, oh, hi, guy. I brought some wine and, and it was this kind of awkward moment. And, he, you know, we said, oh, thank you and put the wine down. And then we sat down and started talking. The first thing he ever said to me is, uh, I can't really talk a lot and please don't make me laugh. And I went, oh, my God, this is going down the toilet already. <laughs> so and then, you know, so we started making chit chat and I realized there's no dinner. This was, the HBO was wrong. It wasn't a dinner invitation. It was just a meeting. So I just saw up like an idiot with wine. <laughs> so it was like, you know, but luckily we hit it off immediately. He's so funny and so lovely and so easy to talk to. And I did make him laugh and we kept laughing. And then Nick Pileggi showed up and we just started talking. And I wasn't sure what we were going to hit on. You know, I had read this book, Boardwalk Empire, which was a very sweeping history of Atlantic City that spanned many decades and many different time periods and when I finally said well you know there's this guy Nucky Johnson during the Prohibition era that I think would make a great protagonist and he goes oh, I've never done anything in that era and we started talking about that and I said you know that, that literally Prohibition was the single event that made organized crime possible and it was for me it was really interesting because The Sopranos was kind of the end of organized crime basically and this was the very beginning the event that made it the jump started it so uh, he as soon as he jumped onto that I said okay that's what it's going to be and I went off and I, uh, I I wrote the pilot and uh, that was like right like within a month of writing The Wolf of Wall Street too in 2007 I did those both kind of back to back that was a big swing for HBO in terms of building that boardwalk on, on the yeah. pier once they hammered the first nail in that set, I turned to Tim Van Patten and I said, we got it now. There's no turning back. They're not going to build this thing. That was the largest standing set in New York film history since 1915 uh, when they did, you know, big giant silent movies here. We built that boardwalk set in a parking lot in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. It was the talk of New York City. Yeah, it was uh, It was pretty amazing. I, even years later, I would turn the corner and see that thing and go, oh my God. This is, and it's, it's you know, you feel very responsible. I mean, it's gigantic. And, a lot and of Superstorm money. Sandy t took a hit of that, didn't it? No. 
coincidentally, um, I think it's funny. It, it makes sense because the timeline, we, 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 it was right after the financial collapse when we started developing the show. One of our producers was driving down Kent Avenue in Brooklyn and saw this giant vacant lot for rent. They had been planning to build a condo there. The whole world economy ground to a halt and building stopped. So the deal was we could lease the space for year to year, but when the economy changed, they we're going to get kicked out of the space. So we thought, all right, we'll roll the dice. This is going to take years to turn around. So two years into the show, we realized we weren't really using the boardwalk set as much as we wanted anyway. And coincidentally, the guy said, well, not renewing your lease next year. So we said, all right, let's just dismantle it. And then when we need a boardwalk set, we'll go to Rockaway uh, and we'll just block shoot all the different episodes of the boardwalk. And it'll actually be cheaper and, you know, we won't need as much green screen and stuff. So it, it, it happened that literally a month after we dismantled the set anyway, Hurricane Han oh. Sandy hit, so people thought, oh, the boardwalk must have gotten destroyed. It was nowhere near the water. It was in, a, you know, in the middle of Greenpoint. Okay. All right, listen, uh, more Sopranos, more boardwalk, Wolf of Wall Street, Vino and things to come. I'll leave to you guys to ask. I just ask you, don't bogart Mr. Winter with your resumes and your pleas for employment. Uh, and if you won't do that, I will prevent you from doing it. So let's begin. Who's first? Who's going to be brave? You right there. Oh, one moment. Wait please for the microphone, oh, please. Please wait for the microphones, everyone. Thanks. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm wondering, since you, you sort of started to go into it, how you pitch an, an idea the first time to someone who has, who has no clue, you know, hasn't heard anything about the show yet. So how did you first pitch Boardwalk Empire? Uh, kind of, uh, well, very poorly, I'm sure. I, I don't, I really don't think I'm good at pitching. I hate it. Uh, and I just, I, you know, at this point, I was like, can't you just trust me? <laughs> it's really going to be great. That said, sometimes you do have to explain what it is. And I think sort of the, the, the reverse pyramid thing, you know, start macro and then start to drill down. So, I mean, Boardwalk Empire is like, okay, you know, you've heard of prohibition in Atlantic City. Well, guess what? You know, Nucky Johnson was a guy, he was a corrupt politician in Atlantic City, uh, at the time when alcohol became illegal. Well, where does alcohol come from? The Atlantic Ocean. So this is a corrupt politician on a, in a city on the Atlantic Ocean, and now alcohol is illegal. Two days later, he's best friends with Lucky Luciano and Johnny Torrio and Al Capone. About, you know, start there. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's like we're talking about, you know, tell me about yourself. Tell me a story. And it's, it's that. And you slowly find that one tidbit and then start to reel in. It's like, okay, well, what is the show? What is the show every week? Who else are the characters? What's at stake? All of that stuff. But, you know, big into small, I think, and then start to drill down, you know, what it is. Okay, thanks. Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Yes. Can you maybe share a little bit about how you developed the voice for characters like Curtis Jackson or Jordan Belford or even um, uh, Tian, Maron, Sister, Sister? <laughs> I'm really just curious, like, the, what that process is like. Um, it's, uh, it's being a good mimic. It's really listening to how people speak. You know, Curtis Jackson, uh, also known as 50 Cent, uh, yeah, I wrote a, a movie for him in 2003, I think. Uh, Jordan Belfort was the guy from Wolf of Wall Street. And I, I spent a lot of time with 50. I recorded him. And I spent a lot of time with Jordan and just listened. You know, one of the things I did with Jordan Belfort, you know, he talked about giving these huge motivational speeches to his uh, his staff every day. And I said, God, do you have any of that on tape? I'd love to see you do that. I'd love to hear it. And he said, no, we never recorded it. 
So I said, would you, if I got a room at CAA and I filled it with assistants and, you know, young agents, would you come in and do it for me? And he said, God, I've never, I haven't done it in like 10 years. I don't know if I can do it. I said, well, let's, let's try. And he was, he was great. I got, I called CAA. I said, you got to get me a conference room and fill it up with people. And he came in and he did it. And I got to just sit there and watch him do. And what, what he did that day is kind of in the movie. That's the, that's big speech. And 50, same thing. I mean, just getting his voice down, getting his rhythms and listening to it over and over and over again. And then saying, okay, I, I can do it. And uh, same thing, you know, with the girls on the sitcom. It's just listening. And this is the thing, too. And, you know, part of your job as a TV writer, if you're aspiring and writing a spec, what I need to know as a showrunner is that you can, you can write my characters. So I know that because I've read your, um, you know, uh, I'll just go, the stuff I used to write, Seinfeld. Okay, you understand that Jerry sounds different than George. You got it. You, you understand that uh, Uncle Junior sounds one way and this person sounds a different way. And that's what the spec script is for, to tell a showrunner, you understand the difference and you can mimic it every week. And presumably you'll be able to mimic my characters on my show. You've read a lot of scripts staffing your shows. What pisses you off about what writers give you? <laughs> um, the laziness. Um, if I see uh, misspellings and uh, grammatical errors, and I mean, it's like I said, guys, it's spell. First of all, you shouldn't need spell check. There is spell check. Uh, you know, I get spec scripts for Boardwalk Empire, and uh, you know, uh, Margaret, the Margaret Schroeder character, calls Nucky Nucky. I said, we've did forty episodes of this show so far, and she's never called him Nucky once. You're not paying attention. You know, it's all there for you. You've got hours and hours of, of observation, and you, it, it's all there. Just do the work, and then that's you know that's the thing too. It's like you got one shot at somebody reading your work, and when you know you're hitting misspellings and that sort of stuff, that's the easiest shit to get shot down. Get shot down because you don't have, your characters aren't good or the story's not good, not because you spelled things wrong. It's like for a reader, it's like there's just a bump in the road, and I see a couple of those, you know, within two pages. Like, I know I'm not in the hands of a professional, and and. And somebody who doesn't care enough to give me a professional piece of work. And that, that drives me crazy. Right there. Two parters, one. Nope, no, um, no. It's easy. Two parts of two questions. Ask the best question. Well, it's all about the voice. Um, do you prefer spec to original voice uh, when you're reading samples? And then if when you're reading those, do you want to read something that's original for somebody? Like they were a doctor, so write what you know. Or do you want to write what you know is what you want to write about? I, I've changed my philosophy of that over the years. I thought I didn't want to read specs anymore. And I would read original work because I said, you know, tell me about you and exactly that. You know, tell me who you are as a writer. And then I'd hire people and then they couldn't write my show. And I, I thought, oh, okay. So the spec script, you know, serves a really important purpose. What I talked about before, they they, they understand how to mimic. So now I want to read a spec and something original. I think that's really helpful. Show me you can do the mimicry, and also, who are you? And uh, and also the you know, the other thing has nothing to do with writing. Is you know, can I sit in a room with this person for eight hours? Um, hangability is a huge part of this. Um, this, that's a long day being locked in a room 
And when you get a great room, um, I was on a show with Laurie Paris there, who's a dear friend and a wonderful writer. Uh, and we're still great friends since that was in 1998. We were on a show called DeResta. Uh, John DeResta was a uh, stand-up comic. And, you know, it was me, you, Matt Goldman, Dave Babcock, Dave Flabot. You know, writers have gone out to do a million other things. But that was a really fun room to be in. Really fun. And that makes the job, you know, doable. If you get one crazy person in the room, and I think we had... Uh, a crazy person in that room uh, it can really change you know it can color the whole day you know so you really want to make sure not only can the person write but you know it's it's it'll be okay to be in there so how long does the crazy person last with you uh not too long <laughs> It, you know, if it's not a good fit, it's 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 got to end quickly. Because if it starts to affect other people in the room and their reluctance to, you know, to, to open up. The speech I give everybody I hire, I said, this, this writer's room has got to be like a therapist's office. You have to be free in here to tell me the craziest, dumbest, pettiest sexist, racist, nonsense shit you've ever thought about in your deepest, darkest life because that's what we write about. And it's got, and you have to feel safe to be able to talk about and explore this. We're writing adult shows for adults, so we have to go to some dark places here. How do you write a Tony Soprano or a Nucky or people like that if you're not willing and you, and you can't, you know, the worst thing in a writer's room, you go, well, you know, one time I, I did such and such to somebody, and then the people go, oh, my God, you did that? And it's like, it's, it's, so now you shut down, and you don't share anymore. So you've got to be willing to say, look, we're all grown-ups, and you've and you got to be, you know, so it's really hard to do this job if you're not in a, in a safe, comfortable environment. And, you know, and again, you have to confront some things about human nature that are, you know, normally you wouldn't get to talk about it at a job, but that is the job. Uh, I see a lot of hands. Uh, we're going to go into overtime. Is that okay? Trist, yeah. is that okay out, out there? He's not here, but yeah. Overtime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. There he is. Chris, are we okay for time? Oh, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> right, because the, oh, the, the, uh, the dice are hot. Uh, you know, the back never gets love of these places. You back there in the black. Yes, waving your hand. Judging by your background, you like to break rules. I like that. That's Thank good. Thank you. Um, so looking at looking at the wire, right? I'm 20 years retired, and you picked up something that uh, cops understand. Only cops understand between partners. The uh, FECK scene from the cold homicide. They were working in the girl's apartment. That was classic. Who brought that to you? A law enforcement consultant, or it was you? I'm not sure what, what you're talking about. I'm sorry. I didn't write on the wire. But had I written it, I would have thought of that myself. I'm so sorry. Terry, that's a lovely save. And thanks so much for playing our game. Now, uh, yes. You. Yes. Thank you. Um, so what was your research process like for Boardwalk? And like as far as consultants and all that stuff, like how long did it take you? Uh, I, I got really lucky on Boardwalk with a consultant. I, had a, I spoke at Columbia University in like 2002. One of the guys who was there setting up the evening was a grad student named Ed McGee. I forget the grad student's name, but he 
he and I kept an email contact over the years. In 2008 or seven, when I was developing Boardwalk, he happened to email me. He said, what are you working on? I said, I'm working on this thing in Atlantic City. He goes, oh my God, you got to meet Ed McGinty. He was actually one of my assistants the night you spoke at Columbia. He grew up fourth generation Atlantic City native looking for a job. I happened to be in LA. Ed was in LA. We sat down for breakfast. He shows up at Nate Nails with a, a shopping bag full of photographs of, from Atlantic City, including his grandfather, who was a bellman at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel when the actual Nucky lived there. I said, you're hired. <laughs> First guy I hired on the show. Then I started my own research, which was, I mean, months of films, books of the period. First of all, you know, the, the, the show set in 1920 and it had a lot of different components. Obviously, the gangster stuff, prohibition, women had just gotten the right to vote in 1920. A large part of it was World War One and people just returning from the war. Uh, colloquialisms. Nucky, let's say, was 45 years old in 1920. That meant he was born in 1875. What did he watch and read growing up? Where it's, how, is he th how does he think of the world? What what movies and books did he watch? You know, he was born before movies existed. So all of that stuff. So it took me months and months before I felt comfortable writing dialogue for somebody who might have lived in 1920. And it took a long time to get there. And also, it's like, you know, when you write period stuff, it's, you know, very careful not to have everybody say, hey, you're the cat's pajamas every two minutes, you know, or... <laughs> Groovy, you know, if you write something in, in the '60s, unless it's Austin Powers, you gotta really tread lightly. That, Matt Warner did that so brilliantly. I thought on Mad Men, it was just very, very lightly seasons with that sort of stuff. So, the vocal cadence of those characters in Board Work were so specific. Was it hard finding writers who got that? Yeah, very hard. Uh, but, but then again, I got incredibly lucky. Uh, a writer who I admired for years was this guy Howard Corder, who's a playwright. And uh, he had written a pilot I really liked called Five Points. Uh, it never got produced, but it was about the Five Points area in New York gang world. And then years later, uh, I was offered a rewrite of a script about uh, Buddy Cianci, who was the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, incredible corrupt mayor. I couldn't take the, the job, uh, but the guy who wanted to hire me said, oh, I, I have this other writer. And months later, he said, hey, do you want to read the guy's work? And it, I read it, and I went, oh, my God, the script is great. He goes, yes, yeah, this guy, Howard Corder. God, that's that name again. So Boardwalk came up. I tracked Howard down, and uh, he had only worked in TV once. He worked on a show called Kate and Alley in 1982 when he was like 20. And uh, he did not have a good experience. And I, I met him for coffee on the Upper West Side, and I said, you know, I'd really like you to consider coming on the show, and et cetera. And he said, all right, let me think about it. And he called me the next day, and he said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And I was like, well, that's not the right answer. No, you can't. You got to do it. And he's like, I, I just don't want to do it. I said, like, here's the deal. I said, you, you come on, give me one month. If you hate it, no harm, no foul, go and do whatever you want. He was with me for the next 56 episodes, and he wrote, uh, he wrote more episodes than I did on that show. And he's an incredibly talented writer and uh, could not have done the show without him, and the show wouldn't have been nearly as good without him. He was, he was phenomenal. It's rare to hear a showrunner try to convince a writer to join the show. Please. Yeah, usually people wanted work, and he's, he's, he was like, you know, and yeah, it was, it was really, uh, but if you know Howard, it makes perfect sense. He's, you know, but, and, and I had several other talented writers as well. It's back there. Thanks. Uh, I'm fascinated by stories about a refusal to give up, um, you know, knock down, stand back up, knock down, stand back up. So you mentioned 40K at NYU, and it didn't hold your interest, and then 73 for law school didn't hold your interest. What kind of investment do you feel you made in your LA education? Doesn't have to be limited to money, but what do you feel like you invested, which resulted in, you know, your uh, grand slam home run of, of a career now, basically? 
Uh, it's a great question. Um, just full commitment. I mean, just absolute. Uh, at the sake of everything else, I mean, I just, I just lived like a monk. Uh, you know, I, I, I had, you know, shared an apartment. I was. I remember. Uh, you know, when I first got here, I wanted to, you know, I was just had to do anything for a job. And I remember I didn't even have a car. And I took the bus downtown, you know, all the way downtown to get an application for something. And I remember somebody said, well, how did you get there? I said, I took the bus. And they went, you took the bus? I was like, yeah, I would have walked there if I had to. It's like, you got to just get it done. It's like, you know, that attitude. So, um, you know, but I invested in myself, you know, really. I mean, it's just, just an absolute unwillingness to let go. I mean, it was really, I mean, I can't even imagine what the alternative would have been for me. I, I, I knew I could not go back to doing a desk job or something else. I just, I can't even imagine my life doing anything else, so. We'll get to a few more questions, but I have a question for the audience. How many of you have an ambition to either create and or run a show? Wow. All right. <laughs> Given that, what don't they know about running a show that they ought to know? Uh, you've got to wear a lot of different hats. Um, you're not only presumably the head writer on your show, so you're running a writing staff. You're also a psychologist. You're a manager. You are the liaison to the network and, and or the studio. Uh, you're, you know, the cop. You're the priest, the rabbi. I mean, to every I've had literally costume designers standing in my office crying. Uh, because, you know, we just gave them, you know, an incredible amount of work to do in 24 hours. And you have to talk these people off the ledge and be respectful of what they do and, and just keep this entire machine going while also being a, a tremendous cheerleader uh, and just getting out there. And, you know, Howard, you know, uh, Quarter, you know, Fonse, you know my, my big mantra was, guys, it's going to be great. Everybody relax. It's going to be great. We're going to figure this out and just don't ever get rattled and just, you know, and it always was, you know, it always got done, you know, and it's not life and death. I mean, as great as your TV series is, at the end of the day, it's it's a TV series. And we're going to figure it out and no one's going to get hurt. But um, there's a lot of different uh, skills that go into that. And there's a reason why it takes a long time to, to learn how to do it effectively. I was really lucky on The Sopranos to sit next to David Chase for six, seven years and watch him do it. And he had a real knack for putting together a crew of people who not only were incredible at what they did, but really loved each other and got along. So when I started on Boardwalk, um, Tim Van Patten, who was my you know, partner in that, he was also an executive producer and our main director on the show, said, we would like to replicate The Sopranos experience on our set. So if you came on to The Sopranos set or The Boardwalk, Empire set, it's just people laughing and having fun and, and people would bring their families and come visit and it was always like make time to take pictures and do all that stuff and that was from the top on down from the people running the show and even our cast, you know, Jim Gandolfini was like that. There were literally times on The Sopranos when there would be so many people around the monitor that Tim Van Patten who would direct it would come over and there would be no place for him to sit. He's directing the episode and he would just pull up an apple box and sit somewhere else and it was like, you know what, that at the end of the day that stuff was really important and people remembered it and that's how we did it on Broadway we always had charity people coming in and like auctioning off visits to the set and stuff and it was really fun and it was really you know that's part of it and that's part of your job too is the ringmaster of this to keep it you know keep people wanting to come to work and, and you know okay, a few more questions before we uh, have breakfast uh, <laughs> uh, you ma'am right there and then you in the black shirt yeah right there <laughs> 
Um, so it does sound like being an amazing writer and being an amazing showrunner um, involve a lot of different sets of skills. And I was wondering, now that you are the ones running the room, um, when you look at the more junior staff and the more junior writers, are there things that you notice in them that make you think this person could be someday a creator, a showrunner, a producer, versus this person's a great writer in the room, but I don't know that they're ready for that? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it goes to what I just said about, you know, temperament, you know, being diplomatic. Um, you know, I think a lot of young writers make the mistake of thinking they're there to save the show. And when you're really there to learn, you know, I mean, if you're a staff writer, I'm not expecting... If, if you're a staff writer, frankly, if you come in and you you know, occasionally write a scene that sort of looks like the show and uh, something we can use or get us to the 50-yard line. I was like, that's great. Real, seriously, I mean, you're, you're not expected to come in and, and, you know, be functioning at a, at a level of a producer yet, you know. So it's, 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 and it's great if you can and it's great if you, you're better than that. But the expectations are pretty low. The you got higher because we see some promise in you and over the course of hopefully the next couple of years, you're going to grow into being a, you know, you're going to figure out how to do this and understand how to write something that's going to be actually produced and made into a television show. So a lot of it is just really how you how you comport yourself in the room, and uh, you know, hopefully you're creative and funny. But then you'll also see, you know, you, you just know how to act like an adult and how to deal with people, and you're tactful and you, you don't hurt people's feelings and you know that sort of stuff. And sometimes you'll just see people who are brilliant writers, but they're just absolutely crazy and just can't deal with people and they're constantly getting into fight with fights with other people and you go, this is not going to work. But there are people like that who run shows too. Many of them. <laughs> What's a, um, a mistake you made early on in your show running tenure that you wouldn't make now? Guys, I, is, am I going to be too big of an asshole if I can't think of one? <laughs> Because um, I know I made a lot of mistakes. Um, God, can, can, I, can I come yeah, back? Yeah, sure. We'll circle right. back. I promise you a question. I really have made a lot of mistakes. I just can't think of one. Um, when you were creating the world of Boardwalk Empire, what made you decide to develop the character of Jimmy Darmody and put him into the story? And if you could just like talk a little bit about the role he played in, in, the, in that world. Jimmy Darmody was played by Michael Pitt. He was a character who uh, had just returned from World War One. Um, the uh, that was sort of the entry point for me. I really was interested in the idea that uh, in 1920 you had thousands and thousands of very uh, broken young men who had come back from overseas who had spent the last 18 months killing people and now had come back uh, to a country that just sort of had no idea what they went through. Of course, you know, the media being what it was in 1920, people had no idea what was happening in World War One. They, you know, people who were in these memoirs thought, you know, they'd come back to their farms and their families thought, like, they would, like, hide behind trees and shoot at each other. I mean, these guys were living in these horrific conditions in, in swamps and, and, and trenches for years and just seen horrific, horrific violence. And it was a lot of PTSD and, and suicides and self-medication through alcohol and all kinds of stuff and drugs, and I really wanted to explore that. So it was a... a, a clash between that culture and suddenly now alcohol is illegal. So you got a bunch of young men who came back who had been killing people for years in the army who now were tasked with the idea like, hey, you want a job uh, guarding this truck? You can make, you know, 
$500 a week, you might have to shoot somebody. And these guys are thinking, well, God, I've been doing that for free. Sure, where do I sign? And you suddenly, you just had a really interesting mix of, uh, of, of you know, horrific cultural conditions that led to damaged people like, like Jimmy Darmody. And that was, that was where I wanted to explore. And then also, you know, certainly the, the uh, father-son type of relationship he had with Nucky was, was interesting to me, too. Yeah, sadly, I won't be able to get to you all, but I'll, let's, make, let's, let's make a speed round, shall we? Uh, I want to call on this guy. You were the first person to write your hand up, right. literally. <laughs> so, um, Can you just talk about uh, going from 22 minutes, and I think I can handle that beginning, middle, end, to doing a one-hour and choosing the pace that you chose, and if people say it's slow or it's fast or whatever, just knowing what you want to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of was thrown into the one-hour thing. Uh, it was trial by fire. My first job happened to be on a one-hour show, so I didn't have the luxury of deciding whether or not I thought I could do it. It was like, okay, great, do it. And I was like, okay, I guess it's time to figure out how to do this now. And I, and I sort of approached it like, uh, you know, I, I would approach anything else really clinically. I mean, one of the things when I first started coming up as a writer, when I first started teaching myself how to be a writer, I would videotape an episode of a sitcom. And I remember doing it with Home Improvement. I'd videotape a bunch of episodes. I would watch a scene, play it back, and then write down what happened in the scene. Watch the next scene, write it down. Write down. And, and I did that with like six or eight episodes. And then I had six outlines of, of Home Improvement. And I could read them, and I started to see how they constructed it and how they dismantled it. I remember to this day that when you come back from the commercial break on Home Improvement, Tim talks to the guy over the backyard fence. So the problem is introduced in the first scene. Uh, it, it escalates. They come back from the commercial. He gets some advice from the guy over the fence, and he uses that advice to solve his problem. That's how you do a Home Improvement episode. And I just did that with everything, and as I just sort of broke it down, sort of like you, know, you hear people grow up to be engineers, and they used to take radios apart and put them together. You know, I did that with stories. So with the one-hour thing, I just said, okay, let me just figure figure out, oh, I see this, the A story, then the B story, and then more of the A story, the B story, and then you did it. And, you know, in terms of rhythm, it's really like jazz. You know, I, I right now, I just sort of, I read it back, and it just flows, and if, if, if I'm not bored, I'm assuming that it's working. And if I am bored, then I cut whatever is boring me, and, you know, and then sometimes I don't, and, and I get, you get bored. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, in the current landscape, if you want to be a television writer, would you say it's more important to have a breadth of spec scripts, or is it really important to have an original idea developed? I think both. You know, I mean, I think, like I said before, I think it's it really is important to be able to show somebody that you have the ability to mimic something that's already on the air, and also the question will always be, who are you? Give me something, you know, original. You know, it was interesting until. 2007, the wisdom, the prevailing wisdom was you cannot write an original spec. That is just not going to happen. And then a guy named Matt Weiner created Mad Men. And suddenly now, yeah, you can write an original spec. Of course you can. You know, and that, you know, the rules change. So when I got out here too, I mean, the whole idea was like, you know, you had to write a spec script because you had to take a show that was on the air. And, uh, you know, the idea was like, you know, people, you can't do something that's not on the air anymore. And I thought, well, the whole idea is that for people to understand if you can write that show. I said, well, what about The Honeymooners? Everybody knows what Ralph Cramden sounds like. Yeah, you can't do that. So I, I took that advice and didn't do it. And then a year later, I heard that these two guys had written a Mary Tyler Moore spec that everybody in town read. Because every agent who was sick of reading Frasier scripts was like, oh, shit, a Mary Tyler Moore? Yeah. And these guys were like, I was like, God, I, I should have just gone with my gut and just done what I wanted to do, so. Okay, last few. Uh, Sophie's choice. Uh, back there. 
Hello, my name Hi. is Christina Jimenez. I wanted to start by saying thank you so much for Welcome. agreeing to do a Q&A. You are truly inspirational, and I know thank you. I myself, as I'm sure many others, would love to work with you one day. Thank you. So my question is, uh, when you were developing the screenplay for Wolf on Wall Street, what was that like? And when you got your first Academy Award nomination, was it almost a sense of relief, or was it more stressful, would you say, during that time? The... Development process was I, you know, I read the book. I met with Jordan a bunch of times. I took his parents out to dinner. I met with his wife Nadine, who was played by Margot Robbie. You know, did all the the the, the legwork on that, and then yeah, I read the book a bunch of times, and then just dismantled it. The challenge with that was the book is so big and so sweeping that I had to figure out what was the spine of that story and how can I tell that story in what ended up being three hours, uh, you know, in, in the most efficient way. Uh, and I just dug in and, and did it. I, I, I think I, I wrote that script really quickly. Um, my wife, Rachel, and I was, Rachel actually sitting right in front of you. Um, we had just had, our son had just been born, and I, we were renting a house uh, near Century City and had this little uh, garage that I turned into an office. And I, used, I was write, writing that script, and I would come in and play with the baby. And I, and I said, if you had any idea what I was just typing, you wouldn't let me hold the baby. <laughs> <laughs> and um, actually, and I, and I don't think I'm speaking out of school. Uh, I, don't even, I don't even really understand what that expression means, but I think this is right. Um, Rachel had been breastfeeding our son and was reading the section of the script where Jordan uh, ODs on Quaaludes and, and uh, tries to get into the Lamborghini, and she was laughing so hard she almost dropped the baby. Um <laughs> And then flashing forward to the Academy Award uh, nomination, uh, I was in New York and Rachel was in L.A., I think. Is that right? And we were watching it together uh, on TV, the nominations. And Rachel had produced Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, and um, when the writing nomination came out, I got it. And then the Best Picture nom nomination came out, and she got it. So we had both been nominated for Academy Awards at the same time. We were initially told that we were the first couple in history to be nominated for two different movies at the same time uh, by the LA Times. And then a week later, they said, actually, well, we found out Rex Harrison and his wife. <laughs> so we were the second couple in history to be nominated for Academy Awards at the same time for different movies. And it was it was absolutely surreal. I mean, it was the kind of thing that we talk about today that I said, it would have been so goofy to even say to each other, can you imagine like one day we both get nominated for Academy Awards? <laughs> it's, it's like so stupid to even say that. It's so, it's, that would never would happen. And it happened to us. And we went to the Academy Awards. And not only that, I mean, then uh, Leo, you know, who was nominated for uh, Wolf of Wall Street, obviously was up against uh, Matthew McConaughey for Rachel's movie. So we were competing with each other. So, but it was, it was really amazing. So uh, it, was, it was pretty, pretty magical. But, you know, I mean, I, I had no expectations of, of any of that. And honestly... I I I really I said it before. I, I truly feel like I don't have a job, and I felt like this for 25 years. I absolutely adore what I do. Uh, this is what I would want to do anyway when I wake up and I make stories up and write scripts. It's it's absolutely a blessing, uh, and such a privilege to be able to do this. And uh, you know, the, all the other stuff is is icing on the cake. I mean, it's great, obviously, and it's it's incredible. I also won't lie, when I didn't win the Academy Award, I turned to Rachel, I said, I want one of those fucking things. <laughs> and um, so, you know, you're in there, you know, you're like, as much as you think you don't care, when you, you don't win, you're like, what the fuck, man, you know, really? So, anyway. Uh, uh, you know, why not two more, what the hell? Yes. 
Hi, my name is Azad Khatibi. My question is about um, your, what you feel is your legacy or your contribution to society. Do you feel... <laughs> oh, just one more yeah, casual just, question. Just, Do you feel that your writing and, and that part of your life is... Is, is is your contribution to society or part of your legacy or is that something outside of your writing career? No, it's my kids. I mean, honestly, my job, I just, yeah, I mean, I, 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 maybe I'm too close to it, you know, that I, I, I don't really ever take a step back and think about it and uh, the most important thing to me is my, my wife and family. I'm not saying that to seem like, a, you know, oh, good, what a good guy or a good dad. It truly is a show. That is the most important thing in life. And um, it comes, and even with even within my career, you know, and every time I take a job, even on the show, you know, when, when we did Boardwalk Empire, I made it very clear to everybody I worked with, everybody I got hired, I said, guess what, you just hit the jackpot. We're never going to work past 6 o'clock because I am going to, you were working for a show owner who actually loves his wife and kids. And I'm if you think you want to leave at the end of the day, you don't want to leave have as much as I do because I'm the first one out the door and we're still going to get this done and we're still going to have a good time. We're not going to work weekends or holidays and you will get home to put your kids to bed because that's at the end of the day what's going to matter. Not oh, we uh, Nobody ever woke up and said, God, we should have done better on episode 12 of whatever shot. It's like, you know, I missed a ballet recital or whatever the thing is. You know, and that's really the most important thing. And you know, as, as you know, and again, it's also I have the luxury of being able to say that because I've been really fortunate in my career to win awards and work on great shows and stuff. And maybe I wouldn't feel that way had I still been struggling. But to me, truly, the 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 you know, I, I love the idea that people like what I do, and and and, and it's really, I love the idea. Like in fifty years, people will still watch stuff I did and respond to it, hopefully in a positive way. But the important thing is is the the kids and the family stuff. Sure. Last question, and you have it, ma'am. Sorry, Kate. <laughs> Thank you. So um, speaking about the future, so one of the things that you keep saying is that you're a storyteller. So you want to tell stories, and if you had, like, complete carte blanche, like any network comes to you and say, you know, Terrence, what is the story that you think people right now or in the next five years should be watching? What is the thing that you will be like, wow, this is something that I've been wanting to do? Or even if it wasn't for, like, that you created it, that you would like to see there. Just because as storytellers, we want people to share that or live through that experience. I mean, I kind of get asked that question every day, you know, from, you know, not, not in the TV space because I'm still, you know, working with HBO and, and working on something for them. But I mean, that is the, that's the question we're all asked. You know, what, what, if you could do anything, what would it be? And you can do anything, you know, whether or not anybody is lining up to, with a checkbook to pay you, you have the ability to come up with whatever that thing is. You know, for Matt Weiner, again, it was Mad Men that he had carried that script around for five years, determined nobody, people wouldn't read it. Um, for me, honestly, I, I, I haven't really thought about it yet. I haven't had time, you know. Um, I'm, I'm you know, working on something now for HBO. I think, you know, I keep we were talking before about The Twilight Zone. I think, uh, you know, some type of anth short anthology show would be really interesting to do, or maybe a comedic anthology. And I know other people have certainly worked on stuff like this and are working on things like that. That's interesting to me. I keep going, people keep reminding me, and I keep going back to the idea of, of doing something a little more autobiographical but again that's another thing where it's like I'm, I'm a little too close to my own life to step away and see it as a as a story maybe it is and I, I did a little bit of that I wrote a movie uh called Brooklyn Rules, uh, which was the first script uh, first movie script I ever wrote um, it's funny I fell victim to 
Uh, I refused to fall victim to what I thought was the cliched advice, write what you know. And I was like, eh, yeah, yeah, write what you know. And, and I, uh, as of like 1999, I had about five scripts in my drawer, the first 30 pages of what I thought were going to be the million-dollar action spec sale that I was going to retire on. And I get to page 30 of these things and go, I don't give a shit about these characters. And it's Jean-Claude Van Damme and Jackie Chan and I... And, and one day I sat down and I started just writing dialogue uh, about me and my two best friends, Chris and Bobby. Just the three of us sitting in a diner. Conversation we had a million times. And, and I know these guys, my whole, some 10 years old. And the dialogue flowed and the, the characters were very clear to me. I, they're the real people. And one scene became another scene and that scene became another scene. And I stopped and I went... I could, this might be a movie. And I, and I outlined the movie and I wrote it really quickly. And that script changed everything for me. That was the script that people responded to immediately and said, because we know you. There's only one person on planet Earth who could have written this story. It's you. This is you. And they, uh, they, and they read it and you go, oh, I totally understand this guy. I know who this guy is, for better or worse. And the greatest thing about this, and this is where the real embarrassment of Rich is, in 1999, this plucky development girl named Rachel Rothman read it. And she said, I'm making this movie. And I said, oh, she's so cute. She's so perky and she's going to make this movie. She made that movie and then we have two kids and, uh, you know, we've been married for a long time. So fastest way to get a writer to fall in love with you is tell them you're going to make their movie. Um, but she, you know, she read it and responded to it immediately. And for me, I was like, wow, well, if she likes my script. I mean, she, and, it's, and the script is about me. She likes me. So that's great. So... But yeah, and that's, you know, talk about tenacity. Rachel, has, when she digs herself, uh, digs her teeth into something and says, I'm making your movie, you're going to get your movie made. I mean, she's done it time and again. She did it with our movie. She's just done another movie a week ago. Uh, things that she's been with for years and years and years that she will not give up. And she, she believes in a script. She gets it done. And I, I, don't, I, I can't tell you. The project we're working on now that was, is seven, eight years in the making, uh, the two of us. I, is, I, I won't tell you what it is, but I have told her at at least six times over the years, just stop. Just give up. It's not going to happen. It's just, it's not real. It's a, they're not going to do it. And she's like, nope, 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 I'm doing it. She's flown to other cities to get people to sit down with people and have coffee and get the life rights and back and forth. And me all the while saying, don't do it, don't do it. Why are you killing yourself? And literally a month ago, all the stuff is done and ready and we have a movie. You know, so that's, that's who she is. And that's, a, you know, that tenacity has to translate into acting and writing and producing and anything you do. The, the final thoughts I'll leave you guys with when people ask me about doing this, I always say that you have to think about trying to, like, joining the staff of a TV show. It's like, it's like saying I want to play professional sports. That's how good you have to be. That's how dedicated you have to be. That's how few slots there are. If you think of every baseball team as a TV show, there's X number of slots on that team and the Oh, the people who work the hardest and the ones who don't quit are the ones who are going to get it. And that's the, probably the closest analogy I can think of to doing what we do. And, you know, and if you, and you, you know, think about it. It's like, how good do you have to be to play professional baseball? Well, then, then you cannot hand in a script that has typos in it. You've got to be working at a professional level. So, Terrence Winter. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>